0: Hello and greetings, my fellow Westerians. I'm Aziz, with me as always is Aziz Shea, and this is Valar Rereadus, where we look for the foreshadowing we missed, new depth in the world building, a better understanding of the plot lines, greater familiarity with the characters, and more fun than you can fit in all seven hells. Support us on Patreon if you are up to it and feel willing. You can go to patreon.com slash history of Westeros and find the level of support and benefits package that supports you best. Also, check out Joe Buckley's Castles book, Castles of Westeros. It is out. It's only been out for about two weeks or so. So uh, I don't have a lot to say about the specifics yet, but I'm looking forward to diving in. Now that I'm back home from Boston, I'll be reading it soon. And I'm looking forward to discussing it with a lot of y'all as well. Today is the Battle of Blackwater, all five chapters that compromise the action of the Battle of Blackwater. Of course, there's chapters before and after that deal with it, but the main five-in-a-row battle itself, that's what we're covering today, along with one extra chapter. Now, we did cover the Blackwater in a different spot, in a different style. We had Sean on for one of our Saturday live streams, and we did more of a book-to-show crossover discussion This episode is not going to have very much, almost zero to do with TV talk today. I know we kind of float in and out of of TV discussion here and there, bringing it up from time to time, but that's not going to happen very much at all today. Less than usual. Not never, but barely. And I'm doing something different on a personal note today. I am not having coffee during the episode today, so if you actually notice be talking a little differently if my demeanor is a little different. I'd be curious to hear that because I'm I'm curious what effect it's going to have on me as a uh, as a podcaster during the episode.
1: Well, you'll definitely sweat less.
0: <laughs> it's true, fewer coffee sweats. That's definitely a plus. <laughs> All right, so today's batch of chapters specifically includes Davos three. The gang turns the Blackwater green, aka the one with the dancing fifty foot high flame demon. Tyrion
1: thirteen. The gang is shamed by Tyrion, aka the one where the hound quits.
0: Sansa 6, the gang feasts during battle. AKA the one where Cersei wants Joffrey to hide.
1: Tyrion 14, Saramandin Moore's last swim. AKA the one where Tyrion loses face.
0: Sansa 7, the one where Sansa sings for Sandor. AKA the gang sees Renly's ghost.
1: And finally, Daenerys 5. The gang meets Strong Belwas and Arston. AKA the last dance in carth.
0: That's right. And this is Dad is Danny's final chapter and this will be Davos's final chapter in this book. Both Sansa and Tyrion will have one more chapter after this week as will the rest of the characters and we'll go through that during the outro. So like I said our usual opening spiel but the proportions are a little different because not only is this a new look something we haven't seen before meaning five straight chapters of battle with three different POVs without cutting to another POV during, there is nothing like this before or after in the series. Maybe there will be eventually, but as things stand as of this recording, there's, it stands alone. I mean, the opening battles of the War of Five Kings are, they're epic too, no doubt. I'm not denigrating them. They're really interesting, but they're just more spread apart. The battles are in the same region here, are in the Riverlands for most of those battles, and with a few down in the Stormlands, but everything here is within a mile or three of King's Landing. So that said, both the Battle of Ice and Battle of Fire could be similar in that they're, they could be multi-POV, back-to-back chapter affairs. For example, the Battle of Ice is Theon and Asha. They're both present. And the Battle of Fire has Barristan, Victarion, and Tyrion. Now, of those two, I'd say the Battle of Fire has the most potential to be as epic and similarly paced. Theon and Asha are non-combatants, and there's only two of them, not three, which is the same as Blackwater, with, again, Davos, Santa, and Tyrion. Battle of Fire is Barristan with Danny's cavalry, leading charges and bearing witness to other parts of the battle from the Targaryen faction side of things, which is kind of like Tyrion at the Blackwater for the Lannister side.
1: And hey, they're both involving fire.
0: That's right. <laughs> no doubt. Lots of it. And Victorian gives us the sea battle, a bit like Davos is about to, but probably with more to it, since Victorian will almost certainly hit land as well. He's probably not going to go under like uh, Davos did, at least not right away. <laughs> and then there's Tyrion, who is in both of these battles, playing the role of the in-between, starting on one side, switching to the other, and doing underhanded things during. Now, that's Battle of Fire. But he may not do any fighting there, which would make him maybe a little bit like Sansa in this one, although he's probably not going to be uh, worried about making people feel good about it. Of course, the main reason he wants to switch is that he doesn't want to be on the opposing side of the dragons. That's... well, that may just sound like common sense. Who wants to fight dragons? If that concept reminds you of Tyrion being on the side with wildfire in this battle, who wants to face wildfire? Well, that's the fruit of George R. R. Martin's labor right there. And the two are even more related when you recall that the reason Tyrion had so much wildfire to use was, well, at least according to the Pyromancers, it's due to dragons returning to the world. So, yeah, there you go. Connection. Whether that's true or not, I think it probably is, but maybe they get the cause and effect wrong. But basically, they're on the right track. Either way, though, it creates a brilliant set of parallels to the upcoming Battle of Fire with this our subject for today. Battle of Blackwater. As we said, five straight chapters, not counting Setup and Aftermath, of course. Davos 3, Tyrion 13 and 14, Sansa 6 and 7. And though the Battle of Blackwater has no dragons, we do. Because we've also got Danny's last chapter of Clash to round out today's episode. A little change of pace after all that battle. But before we get to Danny, Clash of Kings is going into battle mode. So are we. Davos 3, the gang turns the Blackwater green, a.k.a. the one with the dancing 50-foot-high flame demon. That sounds like one of our, you know, creative title thingies, uh, but no, there really is a... That description comes from George, dancing 50-foot-high flame demon. We get that quote during this, uh, this section, so we'll get to it. I just mentioned the fruits of George R. R. Martin's labor, and this chapter has the fruits of the pyromancer's labors, bolstered apparently by, like I said, the rise of magic. It starts off thusly.
1: Blackwater Bay was rough and choppy, White caps everywhere.
0: Of the five battle chapters, this is the one with the majority of the naval action, the vast majority of the naval action. It makes sense. That was our POV for that. And it's the first of the five because it's, well, this is the one where the strategies planned ahead come to bear. After this chapter it becomes more of a slugfest, a brutal wrestling match in the mud and blood and Baywater and wildfire, where strategy is a localized thing. And most of all, the plans made ahead of time are, Set aside by necessity. So first, the campaign. Either look at or imagine Storm's End on the map. Then imagine Stannis just taking his army north towards King's Landing. They can march on the King's Road for a while. That's the easiest route. But eventually they hit the Blackwater. A big old river. Big enough that warships can sail up into it, at least for a stretch. This is the main purpose of of Stannis' fleet. Move those soldiers from the south bank of the Blackwater to the north bank, where they can then attack the city itself. But to do that... They must get their ships through Blackwater Bay. A strong enough fleet could stop that or do enough damage that the crossing effort would be seriously hampered. But as is well established, the Lannisters do not have such a fleet. And what strength they do have is lessened by sending some of the larger ships away to escort Marcella to Dorne. Amazingly, Davos notices exactly which ships are missing.
1: But where was the Lion Star? Where was the beautiful Lady Liana that Robert had named in honor of the maid he'd loved and lost? And where was King Robert's hammer? She was the largest war galley in the royal fleet, 400 oars, the only warship the boy king owned, capable of overmatching fury. By rights, she should have formed the heart of any defense. Davos tasted a trap, yet he saw no sign of any foes sweeping in behind them. Only the great fleet of Stannis Baratheon in their ordered ranks stretching back to the watery horizon.
0: I was showing everybody the uh, Davos action figure given to me by Captain uh, Hema Helmint here, aka Tommy Pappas. He was doing a little jig (laughs) as he was talking. He was giving the quote that wasn't you, that was him.
1: (laughs) I think he needs better dancing skills based (laughs) on what you're showing.
0: Yeah, well, he's working on it. He's fresh out of the box, you know. Also,
1: why would he be doing a jig when I'm reading about the trap?
0: <laughs> he's, a, he's a silly man. I'm wearing my wildfire shirt today. I think I wore it during the other Blackfire episode, too. If it makes so much sense to wear a, wear a wildfire shirt during this one. So even a first-time reader knows Davos is right about this, meaning that there's issues with this, and he knows. And we know that he's right to notice these missing ships. And since Davos is so likable, the tension is significant even some people who, you know, if you're not rooting for Stannis, you might still be rooting for Davos, like meaning, well, I want Davos to survive. Maybe I don't want Stannis to win the battle, but I don't want Davos to get hurt. And well, Davos just keeps on noticing things as he gets closer and closer to the action, and it builds tension until the point where it blows up. Well, quite literally, the wildfire does. And this is his first battle, which is, kind of wild to think about. It's true that being a great smuggler equals being great at avoiding conflict. So yeah, that's, he's a great smuggler. So he has been great at avoiding conflict, but he couldn't avoid this. And for it to be his first battle, what a first battle to, have to be in. I mean, you don't get a little warm up with a smaller engagement. You go straight to the Battle of Blackwater. Dang. Anyway, all this attention to detail, all the things he notices that are off all of this kind of argues for Davos to be in charge of the fleet, not Sir Imri. After all, ship-to-ship combat was never expected by either side to be significant. Now, you know, to be fair to Stannis and, and maybe even to Sir Imri, like we just said, this is Davos's first battle. Maybe at least we could say if Davos wasn't in charge, Sir Imri should have listened to him more. He didn't do that either. Hmm. Yeah, what are you going to do? So the mission, again, get the troops across. Again, ship-to-ship combat expected to be a minor part of the battle. So the skill, the most important part here is picking up and delivering cargo in tight spots. Yeah, it's human cargo, but still, who's better than that or at that than an expert smuggler? If Sir Emery has these skills, well, they don't show and we'll never know because that dude is quite dead. So familiarity with the territory, not expertise at set piece naval battles, which Sir Emery probably doesn't even have that either. Patchface could have done what Sir Emery did, would just sail right on in without really worrying about a trap, thinking only of numerical superiority. Even Patchface could see that they have numerical, numerical, yeah, numerical superiority. So for an admiral, this is a very, shall we say, shallow strategy. Uh, oh. Quote.
1: Had he been admiral, he might have done it all differently. For a start, he would have sent a few of his swiftest ships to probe upriver and see what awaited them instead of smashing in headlong. When he had suggested as much to Sarah Emery, the Lord High Captain had thanked him courteously, but his eyes were not as polite. Who is this lowborn craven? Those eyes asked. Is he the one who bought his knighthood with an onion?
0: This time Davos was doing his pensive face, scratching his beard a little. So a florent, he's the one who's not worthy. Davos literally had his qualifications in his name given to him by their mutual king. Stannis dubbed him Seaworth because he's seaworthy, right? <laughs> More so than a Florence. Florence, yeah, their castle is technically on the water. Uh, their territory is on the water. Their castle is not. Uh, he certainly has some sailing skills. He's not a complete rookie. But come on, he's no Seaworth. And he didn't inherit, you know, Davos meaning, I mean, didn't inherit the name Seaworth. Like he's, he didn't inherit, like these other characters inherited the name Baratheon or Stark or Lannister or whatever. Those houses all have mythical founders from long ago, but Dabos is the modern equivalent. He is their founder. He's not mythical, but maybe one day he'll seem that way. Definitely. Yeah, right? (laughs) We hear about Brandon the Builder, Durin God's Grief, Land the Clever. Well, how many of them have dolls that look like them, huh? None. And, you know, there's other more modern, more documented ones like, well, Oris Baratheon, for example. So Davos is in kind of like the category with Oris, uh, sort of, uh, not not in the sense that his house is as highly regarded, but in the sense that he's, like Oris, the first of his name. Nor that four other seaworths died in this battle. That's something we shouldn't forget because that just makes the whole thing more epic and tragic. And, well, history is not going to, you know, forget details like that, though they might forget things like pitying him for his caution um, or little details like that that don't make the history books that are up to, you know, readers like us to remember. His unique combination of expertise at sea and complete inexperience in sea battles makes for this great POV because we are in his shoes with the inexperience, but he has enough knowledge to teach us many things going on and to <laughs> increase the tension by pointing to how many of these things he notices are, uh, are off. And it starts with him not feeling at all like a seaworth because of this inexperience. And yeah, we're with you there, Davos. But here are some examples of things that stand out to him from the sailor side. And these are the things that we should pay very close attention to. Quote.
1: The wind was gusting from the south, but under oars it made no matter. They would be sweeping in on the flood tide, but the Lannisters would have the river current to their favor and the Blackwater rush flowed strong and swift where it met the sea. The first shock would inevitably favor the foe. We are fools to meet them on the Blackwater, Davos thought. In any encounter on the open sea, their battle lines would envelop the enemy fleet on both flanks, driving them inward to destruction. On the river, though, the numbers and weight of Ser Imri's ships would count for less.
0: This strategy is fun to break down, but from a story perspective, The logic used to create tension in the scene is what's really going on. Davos is very clear about what's wrong, and these things make sense to most of us who aren't sailors, but these are fairly easy concepts to get, right? You don't have to be an expert to to feel how Davos does with a brief explanation. Another example is the recurring theme with Stannis. Davos thinks again on the awkwardness of how they're following the red god here and giving up the advantage of the traditional Baratheon sigil and what that would mean to people. And this is compounded by the fact they didn't even bring Malisandra with them. It's not like she she was really that relevant here. So finally, Davos thinks that it's a waste to leave Salador's son and his men in the reserve. They're too skilled for that. And indeed, what's the point of wasting all that money on Salador if you're not going to use him in this key battle? If you're going to lose some ships... Lose the ones that you keep having to pay for, not the ones that are following you for basically for free because this is a monarchy and they're pledged to do so. Yeah, this is rever- this is a reverse of how I would have done that part of it, and plenty of other things too. Stannis' own pride and the pride of men following him are really his undoing here. This is just one example—the bit with Sala. But never mind the things Davos wanted to do or the reasons why Sir Emery didn't do those things. This is the plan that Sir Emery actually chose. This is what we have to work with.
1: He had organized the fleet into 10 lines of battle, each of 20 ships. The first two lines would sweep up the river to engage and destroy Joffrey's little fleet, or the boys' toys, as Sir Emery dubbed them, to the mirth of his lordly captains. Those that followed would land companies of archers and spearmen beneath the city walls and only then join the fight on the river the smaller, slower ships to the rear would ferry over the main part of Stannis' host from the south bank, protected by Salador San and his Lyseni, who would stand out in the bay in case the Lannisters had other ships hidden up along the coast, poised to sweep down on their rear.
0: I have been enjoying looking at the chat to see how people reacted to me playing with the Stannis doll. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, (laughs) it's as ridiculous as you would think. Quick math, that's 200 ships. Roughly in total, 40 come in first to take out Joss' token fleet. That's two lines of 20. And then the following 160 or so come in and start moving the army across. Now, the, the biggest, strongest ships are in front. And with that many ships, they'll be able to move it quickly, the army that is. And that helps because it means they can put their full force to work in assaulting the city quickly, which gives them their best chance to overwhelm the defenses, right? It's not, you know, you don't want to just attack one gate at a time. Try to attack as many places at once, stretch the defenders out. And that's, of course, you don't want to give them time to attack your guys beneath the walls. Uh, So attacking with as many people at once is the best plan. This plan doesn't go very well. Almost none of this works. But still, the plan itself still almost succeeds, even though they get attacked from behind unexpectedly by two other big armies. That's how you know it was a terrible plan. Everything went wrong, and it still almost worked. So with a better plan, they could have had a lot more things go wrong and still succeeded. But they also had some bad luck. Not everything is Sir Emery's fault. Not everything is Stanis's fault. Some of it's just good plan- planning and strategy by the other side. But there is some luck. Let's break it down. I'm going to do that by segueing briefly into game theory, a subject I have a lot of practical experience with, including a 10-year career prior to podcasting. So I have a few things to say about this. The thing that really gets me about Emory's plan here is that he does the one thing you should never do when you have a big or overwhelming advantage. And this is true whether it's war or poker or investing strategy or just many other areas of life. It's maybe easiest just to say the old cliche version of this. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you see the bottom line is we can't lose, then don't choose a plan that can change that bottom line to a situation where you might lose. These are very basic concepts to people who deal in like risk management, insurance, stock trading. Well, if you're successful at it or gambling, well, again, if you're successful at it, bad gamblers use all sorts of strategies that aren't recommended. When almost every scenario you can conceive of is a winning scenario. You shouldn't take risks trying for the best case scenario. Don't risk certain victory to create glorious victory. Winning is good enough. You don't have to risk losing to make the victory bigger. That's exactly what Sir Emery did. He wanted to be, have it be glorious. He didn't want to consider uh, coming in and slowly. He wanted, he rushed it headlong in like the big prideful goofball he is, But which is such a common way of thinking among these nobility, uh, these characters in the nobility. Pride, pride, pride. The time to take chances is when you're at a disadvantage. When getting lucky is your best chance, or your only chance. Think Rob splitting his army. Think taking the risk of splitting your army in a tight spot when you're disadvantaged. It worked. That's exactly what Tyrion does with his wildfire plot. Now, I'm not saying it's always going to work, obviously, but when you're best, when you're in a bad spot, it makes more sense to take risks. When you're in a great spot, you take fewer risks. Now, let me give you a little bit of math to maybe make this uh, have this make a little more sense. Would you rather have a 50-50 shot at 10 bucks or a one in 10 shot at 100 Pause it and think about it for just a second if you want to give it some more thought. Plan A is vastly more likely to succeed. You have a 50 50 chance. But Plan B is the one that 100% of all those financial professional types I mentioned would take. Why? Quick breakdown 50 50 at 10 bucks means your average win is $5. Half the time you get 10, half the time you get nothing. Average that together, five bucks. With Plan B, nine times out of 10, you get nothing. But one time out of 10, you get 100 the average there is $10, right? So you get double your money by taking a bigger risk. That's the concept in play here. Now, the odds of Joffrey's fleet winning were actually probably a lot worse than one in 10. All the more reason why gambling with them is effectively no risk at all. We call that a free roll. You've heard me use that term before. In this case, it's a plan that might not succeed, but it can't really fail either. Who cares if you blow up your own ship's If the alternative is they're going to be captured or sunk anyway, actually captured is worse. You'd rather it sink than to give it to your enemy. So when Davos wonders why Tyrion didn't raise the chain to simply block the fleet from entering, as that would have slowed them down considerably or raised it halfway through to split the fleet in half, the reason is that Tyrion, as the underdog, was aiming for the best case scenario. Delay didn't seem like a good option for Tyrion because he didn't know how much the situation in the Riverlands had changed. Because a huge part of Tyrion's calculation is Robb Stark here, right? He knows that his father is dealing with war on two fronts. Thus, again, aiming for the best case scenario. You need a decisive victory. You need to finish Stannis so you can concentrate on Rob, or vice versa, finish Rob so you can concentrate on Stannis. Two wars at once is a horrible spot for them to be in. But consider how bold it is to go for an overwhelming victory when you're an underdog. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's a too big of a risk to take. Related to that, keep in mind that Tyrion's choice did not include knowing his father would come up and hit Stannis from behind, or likely his plans would have been very different. In that case, gambling to take out Stannis' whole fleet, raising the chain uh, when he did, would not have made as much sense. Then that situation, you do just want to slow things down. You do just want to delay the start of the battle to give the other army a chance to, to come and relieve you. Buying time in that case makes sense. But again... Tyrion doesn't have that knowledge. He was going for the throat because he thought it was uh, because based on the information he had, it was his right play. Taking out enough of the fleet means Standish's entire invasion falls apart because they lose the ability to assault the capital. That's everything. It's all about the Iron Throne at this point. And if Stannis's army can't cross, that's it. The army just sits there. It's, it's hopeless. It's worthless. It's, it's, it's like you don't even have to bother fighting it. But again, if your only chance to win is to get lucky, then aim to get lucky and embrace it. If you can if you only have a 2% chance, don't reduce that to a 1% chance by fooling yourself into thinking you have other options. Who knows what Tyrion's actual odds were? Of course, I'm just using examples. You could say they're 100% cuz, you know, the author decided so, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's a different way of thinking about this. <laughs> With Sir Emery in charge, well, you know, Tyrion's uh, plans look pretty good in hindsight, but because he, he if he had known that it was that kind of guy leading the fleet, he'd have felt a lot more confident that they would just rush in and make this mistake. But Tyrion didn't actually know Cerimri would be in charge. If, if it had been Davos in charge, it, Tyrion's plan would not have worked so well. It would have went all right. He would have still sunk some ships. The wildfire would have done some damage, but it would have been enough. Stannis himself, same basic problem. They didn't, uh, or rather, they certainly wouldn't have done what the designated dunce of this battle, Swordfish's captain, did. even Sir Emery wasn't that goofy. But that's another part of the plan that's mathematically sound. On Tyrion's point, it only takes one foolish captain to set off that chain reaction. Only one dummy. Davos saw the Wildfire Hulk and was like, let's not touch that. But he doesn't have a phone to tell the other captains to avoid it. it only takes one. Goofball to ruin the whole thing and cause this to happen. quote
1: With a grinding, splintering, tearing crash, swordfish split the rotted hulk asunder. She burst like an overripe fruit, but no fruit had ever screamed that shattering wooden scream from inside her. Davos, Davos saw green gushing from a thousand broken jars, poison from the entrails of a glistening. Oak. Poison from the entrails of a dying beast, glistening, shining, spreading across the surface of the river.
0: So in the midst of this terrible destruction, George R. R. Martin still finds room for some wordplay. Burst like an overripe fruit, you say? Allow me to remind that the clay jars used for storing and hurling wildfire are all shaped like fruit. I've also been saying fruit throughout this episode to build that little joke up. Yeah, set up punchline. Peach may <laughs> also remind that Stannis was already vexed by fruit.
1: Could you could you say that you had built this up so you could see the fruit of your labor?
0: <laughs> damn it! <laughs> yes, damn it! Yes, damn it! <laughs> so when Renly went for the peach, Stannis thought his brother was going for a weapon. This time, the fruit is the weapon. He really is being attacked with a barrage of fruit-shaped ordnance. Yeah, and Renly's ghost comes along and helps to feed Stannis here on top of all that. Stannis, when it comes to Renly or fruit, he just can't win. Of course, we must quote the inspiration for our custom chapter title. Here it is.
1: Fifty feet high, a swirling demon of green flame danced upon the river. It had a dozen hands, in each a whip, and whatever they touched burst into fire.
0: I do believe this is a nod to the Balrog, the fire demon from Lord of the Rings world, who specifically wields a whip of fire and that whip has many tails so in this case it's many whips or a dozen hands with many whatever it's a similar thing orange demon green demon yeah they're flame demons with whips yep george loves lord of the Rings, so i imagine he was doing a little nod there george uh, i mean rather davos (laughs) thinks he will float to safety but then finally realizes after all this time what the chain was actually for Davos never considered an audacious plan to take out the entire fleet. He did not perceive it until, well, it's too late. And here's the quote.
1: God save us. They've raised the chain. Where the river broadened out into Blackwater Bay, the boom stretched taut, a bear two or three feet above the water. Already a dozen galleys had crashed into it, and the current was pushing others against them. Almost all were aflame, and the rest soon would be. Davos could make out the striped hulls of Salador San's ship, ships beyond, but he knew he would never reach them. A wall of ho- of a wall of red hot steel, blazing wood, and swirling green flames stretched before him. The mouth of the Blackwater Rush had turned into the mouth of hell.
0: So here we see why the chain works. Without it, the river current would just push all the wildfired ships back out to sea, where they wouldn't be a danger to non-burning ships. There's just enough space for them to spread out but the chain keeps them all cooped up in an area where they can't spread out which means none of the ships have a place to go to avoid the wildfire except forward the ones that didn't get caught in the explosion had to dodge pots hurled down from the walls and such but there are so many ships and of course the current it's a river right so they have to fight the current to go forward and to stay away from the horror behind them so even though the plan worked quite well even, uh, enough ships survived to start the fairing process, despite that. And that portion of the battle is better discussed in the Sansa and Tyrion chapter breakdowns as Davos is no longer at the party. Contrast what we've seen here to what we see the next time we get a ship-to-ship battle. Victorian Greyjoy, who we can fairly say has a very different disposition when it comes to sea battles. In the Winds of Winter, he sends a decoy merchant fleet stuffed with warriors in the first wave to make a sneak attack on Slaver's Bay. Victarian is literally jealous of those men that they get to fight first. He's just so eager to fight, so very different than Davos. Now, maybe Victarian will, will face some dragon fire after the battle, but even Victarian wants to face down anything as nasty as wildfire during it. And that's despite it being the battle of fire. Hmm. I look forward to that. And it's a reminder of how unique Davos' perspective and the Battle of Blackwater itself are, and how it sets up all the others, whatever they may be, like perhaps the so-called Battle of Blood being set up by Euron versus the Arbor's fleet. That's another naval battle that we uh, look forward to, the result of, and the aftermath of, and just the what the heck is he doing? Will Davos command a fleet later in the series? Maybe not, probably not, but it's possible. Maybe for Jon or for Danny or something. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Davos is simultaneously the closest thing we get to a recurring commoner's point of view. Even though he's above that rank now, he certainly has that background. And of course, he's the founder of a house, so he's definitely come a long way. But he still has, you know, that disposition in a lot of ways. And in the long distant future of Westeros, meaning when the events of A Song of Ice and Fire are long in the past, this too will be considered an age of legends and wonder, will it not? They'll have some name for it, perhaps the age of ice and fire. Davos, as Shea certainly agrees, will be. Mentioned in those history books Certainly the Battle of Blackwater And the future uh, will feature prominently In those histories, right? How could it not? The famous Onion Knight's bravery and suffering and loss And miraculous survival How could they not put that in there? It's too good of a story We certainly won't ever forget Davos's lack of experience, like I said earlier Creates that sense of unease But George slowly dials it up even higher um, Not only does he see these things out of place In the Royal Fleet Some of the other details, like he sees the towers and the chain boom and all these things part of the wildfire strategy. He doesn't understand, but, you know, it makes him uneasy. Sir Emery, you wonder if he had noticed those things or if he did and just didn't care. I seriously doubt that he decided the actual best strategy in terms of logistics and loss rate and what other considerations. He he didn't sit down and look at all the plans and go, you know, the best plan is just to charge, right? <laughs> no, nah, it's just he picked that one because of pride. Now, to be fair, Davos does say there were storms, and that's part of the reason for their hurry, but the biggest flaw in Emory's plan is not scouting the bay, and that would not have taken that one. They wouldn't have lost that much time just sending a scouting party in there. So I, It's not much of a uh, a uh, kickback to Sir Emory's uh, notions. He's still pretty, pretty wrong. The vibe George gives us rather, is that these ancient houses get so puffed up that even strategy is beneath them. Deigning to do anything other than march in boldly is beneath them. That's just, it's pretty, I think it's almost as simple as that. It's, it's hard to wrap your head fully around the difference in medieval lordly pride and, you know, modern rich person pride or, or just arrogant person. You don't have to be rich for that, but it certainly uh, can help. We mentioned Victorian, brave to the point of stupid. But the ironborn, even if led by him, would have probably had even more caution than this, too. Even the ironborn wouldn't have just rushed in like that. Uh, Yeah, and this is a guy wearing steel plate from head to toe at sea. So (laughs) if even this guy isn't going to rush in blindly, then (laughs) that says something. So I just compared you, Sir Emery, to thick as a brick, Vic, and you sink even faster. Emery wears his armor at sea, too. And that's currently keeping his body at the bottom of the bay somewhere. Another man who didn't take the sea seriously enough. So as bad as some people can be in the world today, these lordly types of Westeros, they're on another level. They're even farther above society than most billionaires are above the rest of us today. There are people in our world who are all about money. Like it drives them, it motivates almost every fiber of their being. And the ones who are successful at it often have huge amounts of power. Money and power often go together, right? Real world, fantasy world, same difference. But in the, uh, but there are some differences in this medieval world or in a fantasy world like Westeros. there are lords and ladies who think dealing with money is beneath them. That's weird, right? They're so powerful that they don't even think about money. It's beneath them, really? Yeah, so that, that's what I mean by another level, like, I
1: mean, there, it exists even here in the modern world. there are you know rich families that think it's uncouth to talk about money to think you know yeah. raise that.
0: But th- this is even bigger than that, I think, because they, you know, they're t- us talking about talking and play coming. I mean, like, they won't even deal with it in private. <laughs> you know, like, that seems to me like, wow, you got to be really detached to be above money. <laughs> like, to not even have to worry about money. Wow. Oof. So this is why uh, even someone who's a maverick like Stannis, in terms of how well he treats merit versus birth, even he can only go so far with changing the rules, right? Even if he's, a, even if he's an extreme outlier, He's still putting, you know, bad, overwrought, uh, you know, over prideful people in charge of things that really should have been done elsewise. So if Stannis can't even do it properly, that just goes to show the world around him. Stannis will eventually look upon Mel and Davos as his top two advisors. He's going to go farther down this uh, into this tunnel of, of merit versus birth. But too bad for him. He didn't get there before this battle. It's a twist. Uh, you know, Davos and Mel are kind of like the twist of the old trope of an angel on one shoulder and devil on the other. But Davos's role at the Blackwater was not standing on Stannis' shoulder. He, his No one listened to him. And Mel, again, wasn't even there. Stannis believed, like before the battle, that he could not afford to leave Storm's End untaken in his rear. Remember all that, his argument with Davos? Davos didn't agree with him. Neither did we at the time. Later events seemed to argue that Davos' side of the argument was correct. After all, Stannis had this huge mass of failure at King's Landing it's a much bigger loss than what walking away from Storm's End would have been, right? Because that would have been walking away. That's not even like a defeat. That's just, I mean, Stannis was worried people would look at it like a defeat, but he's not going to lose any men. So if Stannis is able to continue the war after this, which he does continue the war after this, he loses this badly, then does not argue that losing at Storm's End losing at Storm's End wouldn't have really been that big a deal. Again, Stannis' pride Messing, messing him up there. It's like uh, Pulp Fiction. That's pride effing with you. <laughs> His reputation wasn't ruined by losing King's Landing. And he, and he wasn't killed. He gets that rare second chance in the Game of Thrones. Davos's supposed end, while not quite a combination of ice and fire, is pretty close. He gets to choose whether he wants to drown or burn. Yeah, that is a tough choice. I don't really... No, which I would pick. Probably drown. I don't know. Yeah, probably drown. (laughs) Let's not think about that too much.
1: Definitely drown. Definitely drown. (laughs)
0: Uh, Yeah, so it's interesting, too, that compare, um, Joe Buckley suggests comparing Davos to Tyrion here, uh, comparing the Green Fork, which is neat because it's the Green Fork, and you got lots of green going on here. Uh, The fact that Davos is attacking his own home, He's from Flea. He's Davos of Fleabot, I mean, even though his home is now established in you know, down in Cape Wrath. The place he came from, though, is this spot. It's pretty interesting. Uh, but yeah, the comparison to Tyrion is more about how he's an important POV, but he's he's a, and he's a leader, but he's not really in charge in this battle, same as Davos. I wonder what would happen if Emory had just uh, made a dash for the South Bank, just stopped, you know, started dropping soldiers off there instead of engaging in the middle of the river. Well. There's a lot of what ifs we could go through there, but that almost certainly would have worked, but it wouldn't have been glorious. That's why he didn't do it. Uh, Joe, also with a good catch here. It looks like there was some confusion in the order of troops landing that it appears that uh, a lot of archers were dropped off before, you know, other types of foot soldiers, like guys with spears and pole axes and stuff like that. You, you don't want the archers in front, right? You need the, your infantry and spearmen to hold other guys off so the archers can do their job. So it looks like there was, some, that's, they came up as part of the confusion there. Archers getting kind of abandoned and put in bad spots. One of the first things that happened in this chapter, it's pretty sad, uh, is Davos takes pride in his son's sca- sailing. He notices how they're sailing very properly. That's pretty painful, knowing that it's going to be their last battle as well as their first. For all the suffering that so many characters go through in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's difficult to compare anything to Davos having to witness four of his own sons losing their lives so quickly. They can't even draw a breath before hundreds of their peers go up the same way as well as Davos, except he didn't actually go up, but it looked that way at the time. Only Catelyn, I suppose, comes this close. Maybe Cersei will eventually, when, if, if all three of her kids are dead. But uh, it's, you know, this early in the story. Um, yeah, it's Davos and Kat and maybe a few others that I'm forgetting. But as far as POVs, no one else really comes that close. We will all forever be wondering another what if, what Melisandre would have done. And I don't mean wondering if the battle would have been won or not, which that is a a good thing to wonder. But I mean specifically what she would have done. Like, would she have manipulated the wildfire? Would she have been able to drive it back from the ships? Would she have been able to control it somehow? Or turn it towards the Lannisters, make it hit them? I don't know. But that might be part of why George wrote wrote it that way to kind of conceal her full capabilities until later in the book. But uh, if that's the case, then it implies she does have some pretty serious capabilities that we haven't seen yet. Maybe the TV show is some sort of a guideline to that, but maybe not. Ainsley Michael John Griffiths leaves us a super chat with a fruit exercising (laughs) image. That's funny. (laughs) And it says, hey, you. All right. That's pretty perfect.
1: I'm pretty sure it was a pear but I didn't want to say for sure.
0: <laughs> okay. Violent Messiah 666 says, good wordplay from George because King Santas sees his worth. Hey, hey. nice, nice. Amy Lanchip, the wildfire under King's Landing is like all the radioactive buried in New Mexico and New Jersey, just waiting for disaster. Yeah, it really is. It's it's interesting that uh, it didn't happen here. You know, this is something that no one worried about during the battle, but, you know, here during a rewe, we can think it may have been... Closer than we might have thought to something really going wrong here.
1: But no, I do think that's an interesting point she made, just bringing up New Mexico and New Jersey, considering George living in both of those places.
0: Oh, you know, I that went right past yeah, me. Yeah, I was great, trying to clarify catch.
1: that. Yeah, you're
0: right. <laughs> I wonder if that's entered his mind. He's living in states where they have buried, buried think, radioactive yeah, waste.
1: Something that just could come up and just be utterly destructive.
0: Wow, oh, good catch there, Miami. Nice one. Uh, so many seaworths dying to wildfire reminds us of another famous scene where many Targaryens were killed by wildfire. In our episodes on Summerhall, we discuss this scene a, a lot because Summerhall very likely involved wildfire, obviously, and, and though it's not the only time we see wildfire in the series, this is clearly the best example of a chapter where we see wildfire in action. Not only that, but Davos's ship is Black Betha, the wife of Aegon V, a.k.a. Egg, a.k.a. the king responsible for Summerhall. It's not a certainty that Beth had died at Summerhall. She may have been dead already, but it's fairly likely. And if she did die there, it's a deep but very hidden uh, piece of symbolism because it would mean both the ship and the person the ship was named after dialed to wildfire. And there's synchronicity with the dates because Beth Blackwood, if she died at Summerhall, it would have been in 259. And the Battle of Blackwater is a nice round of 40 years later in the year 299. I also note that Black Betha comes from a family where archery seems to be a bit of a theme. House Blackwood. And in this scene, Black Betha defeats White Heart, a rare animal. It was a White Heart Robert Baratheon himself was chasing until he found it dead, whereupon he switched to hunting boar, the boar that killed him. I guess White Hearts are bad luck for Baratheons and their men these days. Mm. But Ar- Archmaster Rennie draws our attention to a very hidden little subtlety there. Arthur C. Clarke has... Uh, used the the work of uh, the, the White Hart as a pub where his tales are told in a variety of his stories. So that's a recurring feature, apparently, in Arthur C. Clarke stories, is, this, is a pub called the White Hart where tales are told. Very cool, Archmaster Runny. Did not know that. In 20 years of in the, being in this fandom, that is the first I've heard of that, so that's cool. Now, it can be difficult to find sympathy on a lot of issues or just in general for Robert, but Davos here, or Cersei, <laughs> But Davos thinks here that Robert named a ship Lady Lyanna after Lyanna Stark. Cersei surely hated that, right? Like, what is he doing naming a ship after the <laughs> Lady Lyanna, the ship, has had much better luck than her namesake, though. That's one of the ones that wasn't at the battle. Remember, Davos is thinking of all, like, where are these certain ships? And that's one of the ones that's missing. So that's one of the ones that went down to Dorne. And as far as we know, it's still out there. So it's one of the few royal warships that's, unsunk since the beginning of uh, the books.
1: It is really funny, the idea of it going down to Dorne. Lyanna <laughs> yeah, Lady Lyanna
0: going down to Dorne. <laughs> good point. I actually didn't make that. I didn't even mention that. That's a good one. But speaking of um, ship names, Tree Girl wonders why so many of the ships still have Targaryen names. Well, that's an old piece of sailor's superstition. I don't know where it originates from, but it's really ancient that it's bad luck to rename a ship. So I, I think George probably ported that over to uh, Westeros and perhaps to Essos as well. Uh, many people were wondering about Sir Emery's experience in this. I don't think he has battle experience. He certainly has sailing experience. That would be pretty crazy if he didn't at least even have that. Some people wonder why it wasn't Lord Velaryon, though. In, in charge uh, that's the house that's traditionally so big and powerful especially in navies but that's not the case anymore the Valerians have really really declined as a powerful house they're not uh super significant they don't have a lot of ships anymore so it's it's a big it's a matter of that it's a matter of the fact that house Florent is just such higher standing and stannis felt the need to give them what they wanted because they're his most staunch supporters they're his wife's house all that business Stephanie the Peerless wishes we had a lowborn POV. Now, of course, she knows about Davos, but she means like perspective of someone who's in a lowborn's position in the battle, meaning like a frontline infantryman or something like that. Um, Even if it's someone like Podrick. Now, she doesn't say Podrick, but I'm suggesting that. But of course, Podrick is right there with Tyrion most of the time, so we wouldn't maybe see anything new. Still, Hopefully we get that at some other point, because I agree, it's it's interesting and tragic to see the kind of things that we talk about in Feast for Crows. Uh, when we get there, there'll be more of that, when we see a lot more evidence of what the war is like for, for the lower levels of society. Other names of ships that people brought up, uh, Stefan B. wants to know about names like Lady Hera and Ragged Jenna and Red Raven. Uh Yeah, Ragged Jenna. I don't know what that's all about. It's not the same spelling as Jenna Lannister, so that's got nothing to do with it. I'm not sure what Jenna could be. Lady Hera, no idea. Red Raven makes me think of Blood Raven, though. Might just be a little nod. Might just be completely unrelated.
1: I wonder if either of the women's names are women Robert slept with. (laughs) I only guess.
0: (laughs) He's just naming ships after all these women he's been with. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Stefan B points out that the bla- the battle begins with three horn blasts. Yeah, he also wonders if maybe we're not reading a little too much into the horn blast, but m- probably not. I mean, maybe, but it's it's definitely pays to check and look and think about it. So the, of course, the equivalent of three horn blasts means the others arriving. I don't really think it's fair to look at Stannis' army as the others, but it is. You know, they are coming out of nowhere. They are being treated as as enemies. Uh, they're treated as inhuman. They're treated as like worshiping some other god. They're Everyone's told that Sandus' men are going to sack the city, which is probably not true. But, um, you know, burning the temple down, that'll probably happen. So, yeah, there's a bit of a, a, bit of a connection there. So that's it for Davos. Until the Storm of Swords, when we see his miraculous survival and rescue come to pass. We'll see him again in week two of our coverage of book three. So that's not long from now at all. Now, Tyrion 13. The gang is shamed by Tyrion, a.k.a. the one where the hound quits. The first line is...
1: Motionless as a gargoyle, Tyrion Lannister hunched on one knee atop a Merlin.
0: Gotta love when Tyrion is described like a gargoyle. Comes up a few times. We can discuss his decision-making skills, his ethics, and plenty of other things, but I don't think there's much of a discussion to be had about his courage. It's there. He does not panic. He stays focused, and he does what needs to be done, which is the kind of thing people say about Tywin. Hey, for once some of the things he's learning from Tywin are coming in pretty useful. Not just for once. He's learned other things from Tywin that are useful, but there's so many things he's learned from Tywin that hold him back or mess him up or cause him to be all uh, wrapped up in his own head. Joff is also not afraid to be fair. It's a contrast to the show. Uh, He shows some fear there. He's more of a, well, he's more of a psychopath here. Just he's happy at one point because he's, it's actually that—that's the actual word used for him at one point in this chapter because he's getting to fling people from catapults and such, which is a strange thing. But it's, it's Joff for you—a <laughs> good example of how battles can contain foreshadowing comes to us right here. Quotes:
1: A dozen great fires raged under the city walls where casks of burning pitch had exploded, but the wildfire reduced them to no more than candles in a burning house. Their orange and scarlet pennons floating insignificant, fluttering insignificantly against the jade holocaust. The low clouds caught the color of the burning river and roofed the sky in shades of shifting green. Eerily beautiful, a terrible beauty, like dragon fire. Tyrion wondered if Aegon the Conqueror had felt like this as he flew above his field of fire.
0: Tyrion thinks of the field of fire in his first chapter. And may I remind you, or maybe it's the second chapter. Anyway, I may remind you all those early Game of Thrones chapters are packed with foreshadowing. And we talked about it at the time, how the field of fire is foreshadowed. Some new version of it. This could be a nod to his fascination with the dragons and or his future association with them. Here's another quote that reminds
1: us of that. The furnace wind lifted his crimson cloak and beat at his bare face yet he could not turn away.
0: Hmm. That, that phrase, "furnace Wind, only appears two other times in the entire series. One of them is Drogon. The other is Rhaegal when he blasts for Quentin. Yeah. So very much that phrase is associated with dragons. Back in the current battle, though, Tyrion's plan worked quite well. But he needs to do better than quite well because they were so far behind going into this battle. So many disadvantages, so many uncertainties. So far, things were breaking his way and would continue to do so, you know, even though he later takes it in the face. Here we get a good follow-up to where things left off from Davos's point of view.
1: A river's current was a tricky thing, and the wildfire was not spreading as evenly as he had hoped. The main channel was all aflame, but a good many of the mermen had made for the south bank and looked to escape unscathed, and at least eight ships had landed under the city walls. Landed erect, but it comes to the same thing. They've put men ashore. Worse, a good part of the south wing of the enemy's first two battle lines had been well upstream of the Inferno when the Hulks went up. Stannis would be left with 30 or 40 galleys, at a guess, more than enough to bring his whole host across once they had regained their courage.
0: And here... After that, we see evidence of the uh, game theory topics I was discussing
1: in the last chapter. Quote. If the battle looks to be going sour, they'll break and they'll break bad. Jocelyn Bywater had warned him. So the only way to win was to make certain the battle stayed sweet. Start to finish.
0: Now, of course. George is a big fan of the show Breaking Bad, but of course it didn't exist yet. So even though he says break bad, that's not a nod to Breaking Bad, but I wish it was. But anyway, the the, the real point here is Tyrion can't afford to have the battle look bad even for a minute. Recall what I said earlier, it applies directly to this. From Tyrion's perspective, it appears that if Stannis' men run away, they might just come back later and try a second or even third time. Well, if Stannis gets over the walls, that's that. It's it. Stannis, so in other words, Stannis might have a few chances, but Tyrion only has one. Again, this is not accurate in reality because the Tyrell and Lannister armies were approaching. So Tyrion actually has a better chance than he thought. And Stannis doesn't likely have multiple chances. But again, Tyrion doesn't know that. We're discussing why Tyrion's plans are the way they are, not, you know, what he could have done better with more information. And the walls give Tyrion a great look at the river and the territory in front of the city gates along it. So he gets a nice big wide view But he has to head down because, you know, he sees the need. If he had stayed up there instead of leading the sortie, he would have probably seen his father's army arrive, or maybe the Tyrells in the South Bank, and that might have been cause for him to say, oh, okay, well, we're saved, and I don't need to go leave a sortie. Uh, So he felt like he needed to make the sortie, even though maybe he didn't. Look at Braun with the cushy job of making sure the oxen are pulling the chain up. I bet he didn't mind that assignment. <laughs> it's a million times better than Sandor's job, which Tyrion himself took up. Uh, but this is no accident. Tyrion is giving the easier jobs to the ones he can't count on when it gets tougher. And though the chain is super important, it comes in an early phase of the battle. In other words, it'll still happen before, if things go bad, it'll probably be after that. So at least the chain will go up. And he can trust Ron to do that because... If Braun runs off or changes sides, it won't be that early in the battle. And if Braun does turn, well, he's over there by the chain, not inside the city, right? He can't do as much damage if he turns on Tyrion if he's not even inside the walls. Like I said, meanwhile, Sandor has one of the worst jobs, at least among characters whose names we know. There's lots of nameless folk who have even worse jobs, but we don't know who they are. And that is, to be fair, why Tree Girl wanted Uh, You commented on Flick that we could have really used such a POV. Now, given his need, Tyrion's that is, to keep the battle looking good at all times, which is to avoid the domino effect of everyone running off, it's a huge problem for him when Sandor refuses to go back out. That is the start of the exact morale issues he's worried about. So he has to take care of that problem quickly before it spreads like wildfire. (laughs) And a huge deal that Tyrion does so. It's quite a move. It's brave. It's effective. He uses their low opinion of him like a judo or aikido master. He's like using their own prejudice against them. Quote.
1: They say I'm half a man, he said. What does that make the lot of you?
0: It works so well that even a few sellswords join in. The ones we talked about who won't, you know, they'll fight for a knighthood, but they won't die for it. Well, here they are risking themselves in a situation that they probably wouldn't have. So you got to give Tyrion some serious credit for, for doing the thing that worked. And uh, think also of how similar this is going to be to what happens in our final Theon chapter next week, when Wex Pike shames some of the ironborn by stepping forward. Here's the real twist. Like I said, as well as this worked as well, as brave as it was, like I said, it probably was not necessary. (laughs) Sanis's army is already being hit from behind in two places but he can't tell. It's just, there's just so much chaos and that's a recurring feature of this battle. The realism of the chaos of battle is not to be discounted, especially on a battle of this scale. Like how is Tyrion going to know what's happening a mile away? There's no, how can anyone possibly tell him? They can't run from a mile away inside the city to tell him because the gates are closed. (laughs) They can't, you can't send ravens like that during a battle. No one's going to notice that. It's just, there is no communication. So if Tyrion can't see it, he doesn't know what's happening. And there's a multiple times where he sees things going on, on the other shore. He sees what looks like confusion, maybe men fighting each other. He doesn't process what's happening. He can't figure it out. He doesn't realize his father's there until he wakes up after the battle with plaster all over his face. So stepping away from strategy and action for some good old-fashioned internal conflict. Hmm, that's the stuff, isn't it? Tyrion thinks on the moral implications of this battle a bit. May be feeling guilt for all this burning of, well, people.
1: Do you hear them shrieking, Stannis? Do you see them burning? This is your work as much as mine. Somewhere in that seething mass of men south of the Blackwater, Stannis was watching too, Tyrion knew. He'd never had his brother Robert's thirst for battle. He would command from the rear, from the reserve, as much as Tywin Lannister was wont to do. Like as not, he was sitting a war horse right now, clad in bright armor, his crown upon his head. a crown of red gold, Vary says. It's point fashion in the shapes of flames.
0: Mm. That's a great passage and it reminds us that if Tywin were in Tyrion's place, as much as Tyrion is behaving like his father in so many ways, I don't think his father would have done that charge. I don't think his father would have been like, I'll leave the sortie. Mm. So, one for Tyrion that, that Tywin does not deserve. The comparing uh Stannis to his own father here though. That's the thing that's kind of ominous too. He's comparing Stannis to Tywin and that shows part of where his determination comes from. When you when you're Tyrion who you know is very wrapped up in his father and and how his father treats him and how he's just so in, intimidated by him, the fact that he's thinking of Stannis in that same light really says what he thinks of Stannis, which is He's very dangerous. He's very intimidating. He's formidable. And that comes straight from Tywin too. And I don't mean the, the knowledge of that. I mean the fact that Tywin said Stannis was the bigger danger than all the other you know, kings that have risen combined. So huh, Tyrion's feeling that heat like the flames on Stannis's crown. Blackwater's sure George's finest example of there being no heroes, no villains in this world. Who do you root for here? You don't root for a side, I don't think. I don't want to root for the Lannisters. I'm not sure I want to root for Stannis. I'm rooting for certain individuals to survive, certain individuals to come through okay, certain individuals to learn things or to have things happen for them that maybe move their story forward, things like that. But picking aside, when I read this battle the first time, I was along for the ride. I wasn't uh, sitting there going, I hope the Lannisters win. I hope, the you know, I wanted Tyrion to live. I wanted Davos to live. I thought Stannis was a compelling character. Would be would prefer to, for him to continue on. But I wasn't like, yay Lannisters or yay Baratheons here. I bet a lot of y'all were the same. Some of y'all probably weren't. Some of y'all probably did pick a side, and and that's cool too. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Enjoy the series how you wish. But yeah, for me, it was hard to pick a side. And I wonder if that, I bet a lot of you were the same way. Hovering above this whole chapter is the fact that Joffrey wins if Tyrion wins, which is kind of like, yeah, which is part of the reason why it's hard to root for the Lannisters. (laughs) Now, Joffrey and Tyrion aren't, what they are in the next book, which is, we pointed it out before, that they're going to really start going after each other and really start hating each other and uh, one-upping each other constantly. But that hasn't come yet. At this point, as I pointed out in the last episode, there's some serious evidence in this battle that Tyrion actually cares about Joffrey surviving. He wants him to close his helmet. Now, of course, part of that is he knows that if Joffrey is killed in the battle, people are going to run away. And if people start running away, everyone runs away. And of course, Tyrion is extremely aware of that possibility and is doing everything he can to prevent it. So if you want to argue that the lowering of the visor isn't actually uh Tyrion wanting to keep Joffrey alive for, you know, his family, it's a fair point because it's more, it could be you could call that self-preservation. We're trying to win the battle. Now, Joffrey puts the antler men in a catapult, and that is an interesting little bit of irony because Stannis is preparing to do the same thing with his own unfaithful back during the Siege of Storm's End. So you know, flinging traders by catapult. Now, they, that of course we know that didn't actually happen because Cressen said, "Hey, we might need that meat." But uh, you know, there's no Cressen here <laughs> at King's Landing at the time. Funny line regarding Joffrey's moment with uh, his visor being up. Tyrion says, "And you don't want to spoil that pretty face either." Oops. Speaking of having a face spoiled, now not pretty. But remember, Tyrion is going to say. Pretty when he sees himself in the mirror for the first time and then hurls it away. So George, choosing his language very carefully, connecting those dots on the down low. And another uh, comment on Stannis's crown. The fact that Tyrion thinks that Varus describes Stannis's crown is a subtle reminder that Varus has spies in Stannis's camp, that he knows what's going on. And well, proof of that is this very accurate description of Stannis's crown. And, well, a good reason to continue thinking about this rather than just to keep it as an idle curiosity is that maybe whoever that informer is, the one giving information about Stannis to Varus is still with Stannis up in the north. Not that this informer could be sending a lot of messages while in the midst of winter, but if they take the castle, if they take Winterfell, maybe, uh, we'll see, different stuff. Situation could change. The chapter closes with Tyrion finally dissing himself from Tywin, right? That is what we were referring to earlier. The moment he decides to be brave and lead from the front is a moment where he is breaking free from his father. Whereas so much of his battle preparations were, you know, he could be, he may as well have been thinking, what would my father do? Ruthless, go for the throat, try to win. Don't worry too much about what people think of us. Just focus on the bottom line of victory. Yeah. But this is different. This is not how Tywin would have behaved. And it's really important. Interesting little moment here. Sandor, as he's quitting, says he lost his horse during this battle. Must not have been Stranger, or he must have meant that he literally lost the horse, not it died. Because that's what happened in the riot, too. Which makes me think, whoa. So, Stranger is just always with the Hound. And if you think of Stranger, meaning the face of the seven the aspect of the seven meaning kind of like a face of death that's pretty symbolic that the stranger is always finding the hound always following him wherever he goes always staying with him
1: maybe his horse dies and he just names another one stranger <laughs> over and over again
0: yeah, he just the many, many faces him. of death <laughs> the many faces of horse <laughs> nay that is not it <laughs> all right let's move on again Sansa 6, the gang feast during battle, a.k.a. the one where Cersei wants Joffrey to hide. It starts like this.
1: The torches shimmered brightly against the hammered metal of the wall sconces, filling the queen's ballroom with silvery light.
0: Sansa takes a subtle note of the darkness and the movements of those bringing messages, and she can tell by their body language the news is not good. Another great example of how she's learning to read people, in this case she's reading a room, now, if one person's body language is like that, it's one thing. But if all a batch of people, a category of people, all these different messengers have kind of the same kind of body language, it says a lot. Clever of Sansa. She's getting good at that. She notes, too, Ostrid Kettleblack has scratches on his face, which we know, little detail, little dot connecting that is thanks to Aliyah
1: I think any time you see scratches on someone's face, especially a man. Yeah,
0: it's a woman, yeah.
1: You see her clear.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely. Oh, yeah, God. stay away from those kettleblacks. <laughs> all three of them. And because these chapters are so, well, all four of them, really. yeah. Because these chapters are so connected in time, we have already discussed a few minor details from this one, such as Cersei explaining why she can't seduce Stannis and how she expects that many of Stannis' men will turn into rapists when the battle is won. She notes Lawless's pretty serving maid as an example. And that is Shay. So we have a couple of clues to some of these under-the-radar female characters who aren't in this scene but are, are coming up. Alyalya and now Shay. We also mentioned Cersei switching to milk from milk to wine. But there's more to it than what we've brought up so far. The wine she was drinking was Arbor Gold. I recall a theory from long back on uh, Westeros.org where some clever posters, I think it was Apple Martini. It's been a long time. Uh, we're we're all familiar with the phrase "lies in Arbor Gold," are we not? It's hey, it's Chloe Ketchum's Twitter account handle. Yeah, it's a it's an important Girls, phrase of
1: Girls Gone Canon. Girls Gone Canon, yes. excellent Lies show. Yes, Arbor Gold.
0: Yeah, if you uh, are, are are like the show, um, his dark materials, they're covering that in addition to uh song of ice and fire. I think they're working on John right now. They do they do all a POV all the way through all the books rather than doing uh, you know chapter by chapter or you know what we're doing, which is a batch of chapters at a time. So that's a cool way to do it. Um, so anyway, the theory Around lies and Arbor Gold Is it looked back At every instance of Arbor Gold throughout the series And discovered that there is a pattern It's sort of like the same pattern that exists for sapphires If you're aware of that one Sapphires seem to be very common um, around Deceptions, rubies as well uh, But Arbor Gold is a similar thing Where almost every time it pops up There is some sort of lie being told Or some very prominent lie that's part of the scene Examples Poisoned Arbor Gold is what's given to Ulf the White during the Dance of the Dragons to uh, end his pretensions of rule. Santa herself is given Arbor Gold in the same chapter she discovers that Littlefinger really meant uh, when he said he'd take her home. He was lying. He meant his home, not her home. And in that same chapter, she takes on the false name of Elaine Stone. So there's a double dose of, of uh, Arbor Gold and lies in that one. Now, I'm not going to go through every example, obviously, because, like I said, every example of Arbor Gold, there's a lot of them. But trust me that there are many more. If y'all have favorite examples that you know, yeah, go ahead and drop them in the chat. Maybe I'll read those as well. But in this chapter, very prominently, Cersei stops not only drinking, but she stops drinking Arbor Gold, which is perhaps symbolic of her need to face the truth in this situation. But arguably, she doesn't. I don't know. Maybe she does. Maybe it's just her way of facing the truth. She's just very cynical about it. Sansa's outlook is a lot less cynical. Maybe it's partly naive, but we also have good reason to point to some of the things Cersei is wrong about. So maybe she doesn't want to be fed lies or be assuaged about how the battle is. She wants the straight truth, the straight dope. Some of some the better knowledge of symbolism might be able to explain why she switches to milk. I'm not really sure. <laughs> but with Stannis, there's a similar kind of beverage symbolism when he talks about serving people clear cold water as the truth and how they don't always like that, how they would rather you uh, know sniff at it. We get a, another call back to Robert, who's mentioned in the uh, beverage scene. <laughs> He's, he orders Ned to drink with him near the end of the hands tournament back uh, in the first book. Now we have Cersei ordering Sansa to drink, but not Arbor Gold. It's plum wine here for Sansa. Very sweet, which I don't know if there's any symbolism there, but it's interesting that it was sweet. For Ned, he was forced to drink some strong black beer. Um, of course, Robert got impatient and started, you know, took it from him. He was like, I'll drink that. If you're not going to drink, I'll drink it. So it's uh, it's a little different, but there's some uh, there's some similar symbolism here as well. Certainly reminds me of that moment. In 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 uh, the scene with Ned and Robert, well, he's drinking to be deceived, kind of. Here, maybe they're drinking to forget, or maybe the other way around. Maybe Robert was drinking to forget. Robert is doesn't like to think about his life or his past. He just wants to live in the moment, and because uh, the past is painful. Cersei here doesn't want to face what's coming, perhaps. Either way, it's drinking to avoid the truth in a sense. Speaking of wine, food and entertainment are also aplenty, and they're meant to be distractions from said truths. Moon boys capering about, people are laughing. But Sansa, with more of her building, growing sense of insight, her skills here, she notices that it's the type of laughter that's kind of fake. It's kind of that, it's that type of laughter that could in an instant turn to sobbing. That's basically the quote there. The food is glorious, but very few people are eating it and even fewer are actually enjoying it. After all, they're feasting during battle. That's it reminds me of Lord of the Rings. Gondor, there are scenes of battle and slaughter interspersed with the man in charge of the defense, Denethor, eating while his people, including his son, give their lives. It's gross and it's meant to be. That's the point. But even Denethor, if he were a better man, would still realize his son, Faramir, a symbol of leadership, needed to stay out there in the battle. Even Denethor wouldn't have said, go hide in the castle, Faramir, because his retreat would mean the flight of so many of his men following him. They were depending on him for his morale. Cersei does not get that. She hasn't had battle training. That comes up in her chapters, how she's frustrated that Jaime got the sword and she got, what, married off? If she had been trained, if she had been taught, she would have had a better sense of the strategy of this battle and what you know, indicates they're winning, what indicates they're losing. They would help with their anxiety and it would help her issue orders that aren't, you know, really bad. She orders Osney Kettleblack to have Joffrey leave the walls. Osney, because he's an idiot who probably doesn't have nearly as much experience as he and his brothers claim they have. And this will come up later when Jamie confronts them about their suspicious lack of reputation, how he just, Osmond seems to kind of make up the name of the man who knighted him on the spot. Remember that he's like, yeah, Robert, um stone yeah that's who knighted me it's like hello that's clear we're clearly supposed to tell this story but the bigger point is that even Lancel, younger less experienced gets it he says look you can't have the king flee the field of battle especially with the gold cloaks morale being as flimsy as it is this has been brought up many times it's not subtle it's not something unexpected yet cersei wasn't there for any of that all he's all she's been there for is Tyrion telling her and she doesn't trust Tyrion about such things she is very skeptical of his motivations, of his reasoning and, and what his real goals are. Keep in mind that she might be thinking of the Valonqar, that she's constantly thinking that Tyrion will maybe be coming for her kids. So he's going to argue, with uh, Lancel, that is not Tyrion, is going to argue with Cersei about it in the next chapter, about how this was a bad move. Osney does argue a little bit, to be fair, but just barely. He's like, well, he starts to like phrase a response, but Cersei just kind of batters him into submission like the way she does with her yelling so sellswords right like we brought this up last chapter sellswords usually won't take orders that greatly increase their odds of being killed when there are other opportunities like say running away or changing sides even cersei is aware of this this is not this is within her military understanding even though it's small she knows you can't count on a sellsword when things go bad one thing she understands pretty well is men. Even if she doesn't understand military strategy, she understands the worst side of men. But she's being extremely unpragmatic. She's accelerating their loss. She, if Osney knew better, if he knew, he would have argued like Lancel did. Or like Lancel will in Sansa 7. So predictably, Joff leaving creates the exact sort of domino effect of gold cloaks running off that was predicted by Lord Jaslyn Bywater and kills Lord Jaslyn Bywater. He tries to stop them. It doesn't work he dies. Speaking of predictable, many of the gold cloaks who ran off are going to feel Tywin's full wrath later. This is Tyrion three in A Storm of Swords. Quote,
1: the deserters serve us best as a lesson. Break their knees with hammers. They will not run again, nor will any man who sees them begging in the streets. He glanced down the table to see if any of the other lords disagreed.
0: Yikes, right? Jeez. Tywin sent Tyrion to King's Landing to reign in the foolishness of Cersei and Joffrey, etc. But he was unable to prevent it here, even though he gave explicit orders and many of his subordinates understood them. Lancel tried to stop her; didn't matter. Didn't matter. Difficult task to stop Cersei when she's uh, determined. I mean, she punches him in his wound for God's sake. Uh, although that's actually next chapter. Cersei clearly doesn't think about game theory either. She refuses to give shelter to rich merchants who seek it and ask for it. She says they're just out there saying, "Hey, can we come in too?" Why not? Why doesn't she help them? It's so silly. They can't hurt her. They're merchants. They're not warriors. They're not armed. If Stannis wins, she loses nothing. If, if, if she wins, those merchants will owe her some gratitude. This is another free roll, and she just says no to it. So, bah, Bad Cersei. More sneaky foreshadowing going on in the midst of battle. Good place to hide it because there's so much else going on. Quote, the only way to keep your people loyal is to make certain they fear you more than they do the enemy.
1: I will remember your grace, said Sansa, though she had always heard that love was a surer route to the people's loyalty than fear. If I am ever a queen, I'll make them love me.
0: Ooh-hoo. But it's another example of Cersei being the wrong person to listen to when it comes to love. She learned everything from Sant, I mean, from Tywin, and Tywin's an all about the fear guy. And, and, you know, Tywin only knew love when Joanna was alive, and that was a long time ago. She's been dead for quite a, quite a while. And so, yeah, again, don't listen to Cersei when it comes to love and fear, things like that. (laughs) This foreshadowing, though, uh, about Sansa being queen, that's a big deal. And it's particularly sneaky because it's, Sansa's still betrothed to Joffrey at this point. So from her point of view, it just looks like, okay, she's thinking about what's going to happen when she marries Joffrey. It's not remotely tied to the possibility that she'll be queen in the North, but we know better those of us who have seen the show and expect that's a strong possibility for how she ends up. So very sneaky, George. Double meanings abound. Another round of songs here, this time from a singer, instead of the group of uh, ladies and and knights singing together. Let's quote it.
1: He sang of Jonquil and Florian, of Prince Amon, the Dragon Knight and his love for his brother's queen, of Nymeria's 10,000 ships. They were beautiful songs, but terribly sad.
0: Again, Eamon, the Dragon Knight, Jonquiel, and Florian coming up in Sansa's chapters. They come up so often, those three, although they're not directly related, except that she thinks of them together. I mean, Eamon and Jonquiel and Florian are thousands of years apart uh, in the timeline. And But it's neat to have Nymeria mentioned here. That's a cool one. That's a little different. Um, do, that, that's do you a little... think
1: that you might make a connection in any way to Arya there? Uh, what do you think? Well, both that it's a mention of Nymeria, her wolf.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, her
1: sailing away.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe.
1: You know, just it's a song, series of songs that Sansa's hearing.
0: Yeah, because I guess in all these cases, she's thinking of being rescued and, you know, 10,000 ships would would be pretty handy right now. Yeah,
1: that's true. (laughs) Well, they they were refugees escaping and she's thinking of escaping.
0: Yeah, that's a great catch. Yeah, that fits pretty well. And it is an interesting little... Tie into Aria. like you said, that is like because Nymeria is obviously tied to, to her sister, even though she doesn't explicitly think of Arya. This is sort of like a bridge to the. She, to her. she can't
1: not hear the name Nymeria without thinking of Arya.
0: Yeah, yeah, I you're think. right. Even That's when a good she doesn't point.
1: think of it in the like explicitly in the text, I can't imagine it.
0: And she thinks that the song is sad, and of course, thinking of Nymeria would probably make her sad, make her think of Lady and you yeah. know, all that. So yeah, it, it adds to the sadness of the song. The song is sad on its own, but. It's got an extra connotation for Sansa. So this is couched, the Keel florian talk. It's 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 couched with talk of the godswood, meaning Florian and Jonquil is mentioned there as well, because of course she thinks of, that's kind of how she's thinking of this Dantos relationship. And Cersei considers Sansa's prayers treasonous. And I think that's why she makes these threats here. At the end of the chapter, Cersei threatens her with ill and pain, says, many of you are going to, we're going to just, be killed rather than allowing Sansa to take take them hostage but later on she's going to let people go to the Sept and then she's going to retreat to Makers Holdfast, hold fast and she doesn't seem to care where Sansa goes so I think that Cersei is just doing this thing that she does she's just you know sniping at, at Sansa just one upping her this is just thinking on her level of insult back and forth and your treasonous prayers must be I'm going to you know make you feel bad for that you know it's just Cersei's a tit for tat kind of person so it seems pretty clear after the fact that these were maybe not empty threats, but they're definitely threats she didn't follow through on. But Illin Payne, we can't just uh, gloss over him here. There's some uh, maybe some symbolism here, uh, and it's important to point out his presence. Um, he has his own moment here. Uh, she notes the striking difference between how her father handled ice, how he cleans it, and himself after every execution. While Illin Payne, quote,
1: he carried ice unsheathed. Her father had always cleaned the blade in the godswood after he took a man's head, Sansa recalled. But Ser Illyn was not so fastidious. There was blood drying on the rippling steel, the red already fading to brown.
0: The vibrant colors of the blade are hidden behind ordinary dried blood, a brownish color. I think that's a uh, symbolism speak for this guy does not deserve this sword. Tywin's going to agree that Illyn doesn't deserve that sword. <laughs> he loves the idea of a Lannister symbol of power added to their roster of wealth and pride and power and of course joffrey and jamie who did nothing (laughs) one did almost literally nothing and the other who spent most of the war in prison after botching his own campaign those two clearly deserve valyrian steel swords for their achievements while Tyrion, who actually was the most successful in leading the war effort other than maybe tywin himself i mean i would say Tyrion did just as much but clearly he deserves a valyrian steel sword more than joffrey or or Jamie does, don't they? Ugh, ugh, ha. Anyway, if we look ahead, Jamie gives his sword to Brienne. So there is, you know, it does still kind of come out all right here, and she does use it to try to find Sansa. Very few of us would argue that Brienne is unworthy of a Valerian steel sword, even though she herself might make that argument. I think it's pretty cool that Sansa is looking at half of that sword in this moment, not knowing it will again go from the weapon that slew her father back to being wielded in her defense. So that's kind of neat, a little poignancy there, a little building for the future. But speaking of Jamie, Cersei thinks on how they used to dress as each other, how even Tywin could not tell them apart. Quote,
1: We were so much alike, I could never understand why they treated us so differently. Jamie learned to fight with sword and lance and mace, while I was taught to smile and sing and please. He was heir to Casterly Rock, while I was to be sold to some stranger like a horse to be ridden whenever my new owner liked, beaten whenever he liked, and cast aside in time for a younger filly. Jamie's lot was to be glory and power, while mine was birth and moonblood.
0: Over time, that distance has grown and continues to grow. She is less and less like Jamie, and he is less and less like her. That's a bigger part of the Storm of Swords and beyond, but it starts here in these ending chapters. One of the first signs of it we saw was how down in the dungeon, there, Jamie's got this big thick beard and he's normally clean shaven. And that's so there's no way you're going to mistake him for Cersei when he's looking like that. Notice also how Cersei uses the same language I used in referring to Danny's wedding way back when. She thinks of herself as being treated like a horse, just as Drogo treats Danny like a horse. First, he's like all soothing, like, hey, come here, I'm going to be nice to you. And then once she's like over her fear, he starts just treating her badly again.
1: And just like how, you know, Jorah refers to her as like, you know, you were just bought and sold.
0: Yeah, yeah. like term like broodmare thrown around. It's yeah. it's pretty, it's it's gross, but it's pretty accurate to the attitude of a lot of these guys as to how they treat women. Joe Buckley wonders uh, that what a Cersei POV would have been like here. That definitely would have been interesting. A dark one, but it would have been interesting. Rereaders know too that Cersei's later gonna maybe not fall in love with Wildfire, but really develop a fascination for it. And uh, Jamie even thinks about how she's a little bit like Aries, maybe not like, but it's, it's too uncomfortably similar. And well, oof, if she had actually seen all this wildfire in action, she's mostly inside. Well, hey, Sansa even describes her as having eyes of wildfire in this chapter. Mm-hmm, interesting, interesting. You wonder if maybe Jamie thought that about Aries. She, she actually has green eyes and Aries's were purple, but still Aries had feverish eyes and fever is, you know, associated with redness and uh, flame. John Hagee says, Varus allegedly bought fake infant Aegon in exchange for a cloak of arbor gold here. A cask of arbor gold. That's another example of the lie, of lie with arbor gold. Good one. Very good one. That's a huge one. I personally can't imagine feasting during battle, but some commenters said that food can be comforting for some. Fair to acknowledge that, you know, it can maybe, some people it helps curb their anxiety a little bit, certainly wouldn't overcome it in a spot like this, but we're all different. We all handle stress differently. Mm. Stephanie wonders, uh, Stephanie the Peerless, that is, from Flick wonders, has Cersei used Tears as a weapon? Because, you know, it comes up here that Cersei suggested Sansa, you know, good job, yeah, use those Tears, practice that, you're going to need that. Tree Girl uh, figures that yes, she probably has. Maybe it's to Jamie. If not, it probably wouldn't work on Tywin. <laughs> and that might be why she hasn't done it much because if it's not going to work on your father when you're a kid, well, it wasn't going to work on her mother probably because her mother, you know, her mother was only died when she was around seven. So there wouldn't have been much time for her to do that either. So, but Robert. May have worked on Robert. Yeah, certainly getting mad at him worked. You may not have had. I think
1: I think crying would have worked very well on Robert. More getting mad. I think he would have. You know, seen her vulnerability and weakness. I think she's too prideful. I I think so too. But I still think that if she'd gone that route, she would have had more success.
0: Yeah. Hmm. You wonder though maybe our best example is the letter to Jamie where she says I love you I love you I love you and I mean she's not crying in that one but it's 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 definitely like a pleading tone.
1: Yeah, I mean picture if they'd maybe been together in person the way that would have come off basically mm. what she wrote emotional I think not is not so much angry.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good point. So it, also to point out here she kinda goes back and forth not only with her threats to Sansa, but with her the way she talks about how she might submit to Sansa or to Stannis. Die, she says she's she would die rather than submit to him, but she also had talked about, you know, submitting to him, you know, going out there in her white dress and and uh trying to, you know, be reasonable with him and and accept his surrender, or accept her surrender. So She's kind of all over the place here. This isn't obviously this is George is aware that he's written her like this. He's he's aware that he's written her with these contradictions. It's clearly intentional. It shows that, you know, she's her mind is jumping from spot to spot. She's a little bit unhinged isn't the right word. She's, you know, got her her demeanor is still fairly calm from a distance anyway. But she isn't sure what to do. She feels helpless, and that's making her latch on to different ideas and run with them before latching onto something else and running with that as the circumstances change. And this all is going to maybe lead to maybe a groundwork for when Cersei is feeling isolated and, and alone much later uh, down in the series. More along where we are now, where we're waiting to see where things move forward. And that is it for Sansa 6. Tyrion 14, Sir Moore's last swim, a.k.a. the one where Tyrion loses face we just picked up where Tyrion left off, essentially. He said he would lead the charge in his last chapter, and here he is leading said charge right before it starts. In other words,
1: we go straight to the action. The slot in his helm limited Tyrion's vision to what was before him. but When he turned his head, he saw three galleys beached on the tourney grounds, and a fourth, larger than the others, standing well out into the river, filing bar- firing barrels of burning pitch from a catapult. This
0: first line is unlike most other first lines in that it almost feels like it belongs in the middle of a chapter. It just kind of like flows as if the action has been going on for a while, but it is the middle of a battle. So that's, that's, there's no time for setup, no need for setup. It's just right there. Boom. I like that. It's really cool. It's desperate. It's hurried. The writing ref- reflects this quite well. Uh, you know, George changing gears for the situation. It's also the one with the incredibly crazy and epic bridge of boats, something the likes of which stand as fairly unique and. From my point of view, my personal history of reading fantasy and fiction and historical fiction and actual history, I don't know anything like this bridge of boats. It's very cool. I mean, there's sort of similar things. For example, there's a real bridge of boats built by uh, Xerxes, actual Xerxes, the emperor to, to cross over um, from the Hellespont to bring his army to, uh, into Greece. Uh, which sets up the you know, the events of the movie 300. Well, the real events that were portrayed very fantastically in the movie 300. Because yeah, real life Spartans didn't wear Speedos. Surprise.
1: <laughs> they were nothing <laughs> at Narded, all.
0: Nor did Xerxes look <laughs> or talk like that. Anyway, off topic. <laughs> so this stands out as a very unique action sequence in the history of fantasy, as far as I know. <laughs> it's very exciting on reread. Even when you know what's going to happen... The tension, the pacing is still drags you along really quickly. I find myself reading faster. I, I'm like my my pace accelerates as the pace of the chapter does. And these are shorter chapters, but we're still finding new things. We're still we still have lots to say. And well, here's a quote.
1: They formed up in spearhead with him at the point. Sir Moore took the place to his right. Flames shimmering against the white enamel of his armor. His dead eyes shining passionlessly through his helm.
0: Yet another comparison of Kingsguard to White Walkers. Words like dead eyes and white and ice and you know cold steel, things like that are so common. This time they are interspersed with the flames, which makes it all the more eerie and interesting. And a second later, what is Moore described as death in snow white silk? More death, snow white, all that. Snow White, haha. Pod, gotta love Pod. What a hero. What a a great dude. He argues to follow here. He's like, I'm with you. I'm your squire. And Tyrion thinks, okay, I don't have time to argue about that. Brienne, very similar to how he is with her. He's like, I'm your squire. I'm coming with. Pretty cool. Gotta love Pod. Almost right away, they accomplish their primary goal, which is to stop the ram at the gates. But afterwards, there's clearly more to be done. That's the bulk of this chapter. That more that comes after. So immediately after, the first thing they do after stopping the Mudgate, or stopping the uh the first battering ram, is to see that there's another ram at the mudgate and head over there. By the time the series ends, it's not unlikely that Tyrion will have been in the most battles of anyone in terms of POV chapters. I wonder if he'll ever be this deep in a battle again that he experiences it from the front lines, that he experiences battle fever, that he goes berserk almost. When when and if he commands for Danny, Might not be in the front lines or Maybe it will be exactly that Now that he's seen what impact he can have Now that he knows he can shame people into following That they will be eager to prove themselves When they're led by someone like him Or maybe it'll be that he'll be on a dragon And I don't know what to imagine there That's just something to dream on and, and, And see what George does for us Interesting too that he mistakes Mandan for Balon briefly. He's like the Kingsguard are kind of, they all look the same to him, <laughs> which is perhaps another bit of uh, a nod to them being White Walker-ish because they're just, uh, you know, they're they're lacking in personality. They're just shadows. They're just these formless, shapeless defenders, but they're not just defenders because they can attack you like Mandan does. <laughs> the wildfire phase of the battle is... Uh, Entire is not entirely over at this point, but it's mostly over. There's no more surprise from it. There's still wildfire here and there. It's destroyed a lot of ships, but it's mostly just a thing to avoid in the battlefield now. Everybody's kind of moving around it, just ignoring Not ignoring it, but it's a barrier rather than something that's driving the action. There's lots of mud and blood and river water, of course. Stannis is still sending men across. Uh, at one point, there's a, a pot of wildfire explodes over Tyrion, but the net effect on the narrative is just to... Create light for a second So it just gives us All a better view It's not You know Driving his actions The bridge of boats too If there was more wildfire The bridge of boats Would have gone up In flames earlier Which is just Another little What if moment Again The king's guard Are called Two white shadows And Tyrion becomes Bathed in blood Shortly after The symbolism Is all over the place Bathed in blood Being part of battle Baptism by fire Baptism by blood yeah, really, really brutal. A knight attempts to surrender to him, and his hand is inside his gauntlet. It's a little bit like the knight surrendering him at, at the Green Fork with his leg pinned. It's so awful that Tyrion can't fully process it. Um, the, 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 the scope of how terrible everything is, and it's again part of why he goes has the battle fever. Probably what why people go into the battle fever. The trauma of what's happening around them is so awful that they. Flip into some other mode where their brain gets, has a different way to process it because the regular human uh, outlook of it would just maybe break you like it does to Sandor. So this is all deeper symbolism here too of the sacrifices that of young men and, and women and, and property too to d- are all destroyed in the name of ushering in the new whether it's a new king, a new queen, a new regime. But of course, it doesn't actually happen because the new is beaten. Stannis, the new king with new gods, new to Westeros anyway, does not take over. Instead, the status quo of Lannister rule is maintained. As Tyrion is uh, going through the chapter here, uh, at one point as he's on the bridge, I believe he's on the bridge of boats, when this happens, a naked man just splatters right in front of him. And it's so gross. Blood actually goes through the isolate of his helm from this splattered naked man. It seems kind of random. Like, what? Why is a naked man flying? Oh, yeah. It's explained in the previous chapter. Quote.
1: Joff had the antler men trussed up naked in the square below. Antlers nailed to their heads. When they'd been brought before the Iron Throne for justice, he had promised to send them to Stannis. A man was not as heavy as a boulder or a cask of burning pitch and could be thrown a deal farther. Some of the gold cloaks had been wagering on whether the traders would fly all the way across the Blackwater.
0: And some of those gold cloaks became traders themselves. Oops. (laughs) Probably had their knees broken by time. Anyway, during the, the, the point is that we draw that dot, we connect that dot. We know that's one of the antler men landing right by Tyrion. During the chaos, Tyrion starts to notice men fighting on the opposite shore, but he's been spun around. And he's not sure whether that's actually the opposite shore or not. He's like, wait, what's going on? And he's confused because, you know, he's had his, a blow to the head, been thrown from his horse. He's smacked onto the deck. The bridge, the boats are spinning around. He's in panic. We know that this is Lord Tywin and and, uh, Renly's ghost, a.k.a. Garland, Tyrell, and Mace, and all them have arrived. We know that's what's going on, but Tyrion has no idea. The battle is not going to end for a while, but it's over. It's effectively over. Stannis has lost, but Tyrion doesn't know that yet. Cersei doesn't know that yet. Almost nobody in King's Landing knows that yet, except for maybe, well, the people outside of King's Landing on Stannis' side who are realizing that, uh uh-oh, this is bad. So while Sir Emery is getting out admiral on the water, Stannis is getting out generaled on land, if we're being frank. He's a good commander, but he doesn't uh, come off well in this battle. He knew the Tyrell army was out there somewhere. He tried to snag that infantry. He sent one of his knights to go get them. And he's like, oh, well, I guess Loras Tyrell got there first. Does he not give them any more thought after that? Maybe that's why he wanted to rush to King's Landing and take it so quickly before they could do anything about it. In that case, that's smart. But on the other hand, how is he taken so unawares by them with that much time having passed? He has to know they're out there. Same as Tywin. He maybe doesn't know Tywin's out there, but he has to at least be aware of the possibility. And of course, Tyrion is perhaps part of the reason why he never found that out. Because it's Tyrion's clansmen that are assigned the kill Stannis's scouts duty. So maybe Stannis did do some due diligence, but Tyrion's countermeasures were just that effective. It's unclear, but I think it's definitely a strike against Stannis any way, either way you look at it. His army was blind, and it really cost him. So, of course, Renly's Ghost is not a general, <laughs> but nor was it really Renly, but it was Littlefinger's idea, and it's a great play. Hate the player, but love that game. I got to admit, Littlefinger's move, super clever. I don't fault Stannis for not seeing that one coming, right? He, he should have, like I said, he should have seen the Tyrell army. He should have been thinking about that. Same with Tywin, probably but no one could have predicted this move. So, you know, good job. Just take the loss on that one, Stannis. (laughs) As well covered as the battle is from so many POVs, most of our knowledge on that front, meaning what happens with regards to Renly's ghost and with regards to the armies attacking Stannis from behind, that mostly is explained after the battle, but since we're rereading, we can kind of put it together in the order we want. In addition to Tyrion unwittingly noting it here, Osford Kettleblack tells Cersei and Sansa's next chapter, the next chapter, that it may be that Sansa's men are fighting each other. So they sort of have a clue, but they haven't figured out really what's happening. They just can tell that something is going wrong on the other side of the river, and it looks like it's good for us. Tyrion continues to kill. He's fighting. He's brave. He's got, got that battle fury. And he starts to fall in the water. He's able to catch himself. Has to pull his helmet off. Because water's getting in there. And that gives Mandan more an opportunity. Though it may also have saved his life. Not Mandon, obviously, Tyrion. Had Tyrion not taken his helm off, Mandan may have seized his opportunity to kill Tyrion by just, you know, pushing him into the water, drowning him, which is what Pod does to Mandan. Drowns him. Again, more love for Pod here when we unpack what happened. I don't mean the obvious. Saving Tyrion to the last possible second, great job. You can't do any better than that as a squire. I just mean the fact that he was even there. A few moments before, Tyrion is like, where'd Pod go? I don't know. He's, he's, he's missing. He doesn't, he doesn't have time to think about it, but Pod's nowhere nearby, nowhere in sight. That means Pod catches up probably to Tyrion. from He fell behind, caught back up. And so even after Tyrion's already been on the bridge of boats for a, few, a minute or two, which is progressively getting more and more dangerous, Podrick climbs on the bridge of boats anyway and helps Tyrion out and then gets him off. So that's super cool. He's super brave. It's even braver than I realized because I just didn't, I didn't fully appreciate the timing that Podrick likely climbed onto the boats when they were even more dangerous than when Tyrion climbed on them. And when Tyrion was, when Podrick gets on, it's like Tyrion says, "I got to get off now." So really, last minute, really brave. And there's another parallel I never noticed until this reread either, and it, re- it relates to Podrick and uh, Dylan. Ned Stark, hand of the king, he with the most chapters in the Game of Thrones, mostly in King's Landing, is killed by Illan Payne. Here in a Clash of Kings, Tyrion Lannister, hand of the King, he with the most chapters in A Clash of Kings, entirely in King's Landing, is saved by Podrick Payne. <laughs> killed by a pain, saved by a pain. Those are our hands. Joe Buckley suggests that this might be the fastest paced chapter in all of the Song of Ice and Fire. I don't know how you would measure such a thing, but I agree. It is a worthy nominee for that title. Tyrion gets an almost cruel glimpse of a possible future when he attacks outside the Mudgate when the defenders begin shouting, Half Man. He finally earns some respect and adoration from his peers, as well as just his hirelings. Like other, obviously, he's had the Klansmen call him that, and it made him feel pretty good. But this is different. This is the Westerosi. Proper people that he's not gotten a lot of respect from, and this is uh, a nice moment in that regard, despite how awful it is in so many other regards. It's a kind of a quick view into what life could have been after the Blackwater if Tyrion had been, you know, conscious and able to maybe accept some of the accolades he deserved. Maybe that would have helped his reputation a little bit instead of him just. The news being, it looks like he's going to die. That's that's what the immediate news was uh, uh, in the aftermath, that it looks like Tyrion's going to die. So rather than him maybe getting some accolades or praise, it's like, oh, well, prepare to say goodbye. Also, Joe points out the bridge of boats as a good argument against the notion that Stannis doesn't inspire loyalty. Like, it was one thing for Tyrion to climb on the boats and do his thing, but remember what he said before getting on. that He's like, those are brave men. Let's go kill them. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they're brave, but that they're they're fighting for Stannis and doing really brave things. So yeah, good point. Good point. Joe mentions that the Antler Man explodes like a melon. More fruit, <laughs> fruit references all over the place in this battle. So last episode we talked about the evidence that Mandon Moore attacked Tyrion on Cersei's orders. This time we'll I'll bring up some of the evidence for Littlefinger. It's pretty similar evidence. One of it, uh, I already brought up the fact that Mandon Moore is from the Vale, then he came to King's Landing at the same time as John Aaron, which is the same time Littlefinger came, so they have this sort of proximity and regional connection. But the main thing to me is that it's uh, it's kind of under, some people would say that Littlefinger would want him to, would want to taunt Tyrion. I think he might want to, but I don't know if he would just make that such an important part of, the, of his goal, that he would sacrifice his opportunity. Remember, too, What does Littlefinger do alongside Olenna at the Purple Wedding? They try to pin it on him. So there's already evidence that Littlefinger is trying to get rid of Tyrion by pinning this murder on him, which results in him being nearly executed for treason. So I think there's additional evidence of Littlefinger making a second attempt. So if that's a second attempt, it fits with this one being a first attempt. Whereas with Cersei, yep, there's evidence. You know, he the joy turning ashes in your mouth, all that. He threatened Cersei in a way he never had threatened her before. Threatens to come for Tommen and do awful things to him. He leans into it. He says, I'll be the monster she expects me to be and all that. So it's very inconclusive here. I I lean Littlefinger because Littlefinger makes more distinct attempts on Tyrion's life. Well, at least one other one. And so this fits with that. But I will not argue with anyone who thinks it's Cersei more than... To say the things I've already said, which you just heard, so I don't need to repeat them. Jaded redhead says in 1282, Edward I had a bridge of boats between the Isle of Anglesey and the north coast of Wales near modern-day Conwy's. It is now the Menai Strait. Yeah, you know, I'm, I was actually didn't think of that, um, uh, but I am aware of it. The Isle of Anglesey was really important to the Welsh because it was a fertile island, and they they it, they relied on it for a lot of their food. So during this war, Edward. Took the strategy of denying their food and cut them off from their food supply, and it was very effective. It was the fir- uh, Wales had previously been really hard to beat because they have such a great home field advantage, to use a sports metaphor. Uh, in other words, they had deep forests and, and high valleys and, and snow and things like that that their people who were the locals are really used to handling. That invading armies had a horrible time with um, ambushes, supply lines being cut. This was sort of like besieging an entire forest. Edward cut off their food from their little island and uh, really caused great long-term damage and helped him win that war. Amy Lantrip says, the wildfire at the Battle of Blackwater reminded me of the battle during the Three Kingdoms period in China, where one side sent flaming ships to the other side and set the enemy ships on fire. Yeah, there's some really neat fire ship examples out there in the world. I went through some of those with our good friend, Daniele Bellelli, podcaster- for History on Fire. We did an episode combined called History on Blood and Fire. (laughs) We'll play on words there. We we never do that, right? Where we talked about some of those exact things. We also did some comparisons to wildfire and Greek fire. We talked about the Battle of Constantinople. There's just so many great comps. I'm glad to see you guys reminding me some of those. So if you are interested in that comparison, go check out our episode called History on Blood and Fire. Scott Wortman loves that Pod killed a Kingsguard. And I don't ever recall Pod bragging about it. He killed a Kingsguard. He didn't mention it to Brienne, I don't think. Maybe she wouldn't believe him, but it's true, man. Ring that bell, Pod. You you did a great deed and you deserve some credit for that. Maybe maybe he'll, you know, if he survives Lady Stoneheart, maybe one day he'll bring it up. Be like, yeah, I killed a Kingsguard. Be like, you what? (laughs) Because he's an honest kid. I think Brienne would believe him, but would just be astonished. Tell me the story. And then Pod would you know, stammer his way through the story because he's probably not a very good storyteller. <laughs> Matthew Forster loves the uh, seeing Tyrion go berserker mentioned on Facebook. And, uh, and he asked, did Tyrion have training? And, or maybe it was somebody else who asked if Tyrion had training. Either way, yes, Tyrion definitely had training. He is a, a son of the nobility. He mentions at one point he has this perfectly fitted suit of armor. And yes, yeah, certainly he's had to have some lessons with the master at arms, though I don't, think there's any specific memories or, or this dialogue of that, it would be a huge surprise to me if he had no training whatsoever. Because it's just the thing the nobles do, even though Tyrion is not the stature of a warrior, he's clearly capable of fighting and, not, and pretty good at it. And you know, from horseback, he's even more effective. I would think he got trained. Uh, Stefan B wants to know which of Stannis's knights went across the bridge of boats. I wish I could give that detail, but we do not know. St- Tyrion couldn't even make out any sort of sigils. So it is not ta- not happening, but I wish I knew. That's pretty cool. No heroic battle tropes there, just desperate bravery. And uh, it's funny, too, because you have this sort of very classic trope of the cavalry arriving, right? <laughs> Well, Tyrion isn't awake for that. He's <laughs> unconscious when the cavalry arrives. And he doesn't even really realize when it's for. He does actually see it. He just doesn't realize what he's processing. Ridiculous Ed Talat has a comment as for why Pod may not have bragged about killing a Kingsguard. And it's because he stabbed him in the back, knocked him in the water uh, from behind. So it wasn't necessarily a, quote, fair fight. Not that Mandon was engaging in would, a fair would fight. Would you say it was
1: not a righteous kill?
0: Oh, not a righteous kill. No, it was not the way. So <laughs> good point by ridiculous head tall That is maybe something that is an, an ignoble victory Maybe not something to brag about That could very well be it Sansa 7 The one where Sansa sings for Sandor A.K.A. the gang sees Renly's ghost Technically they saw Renly's ghost off page Much earlier in the battle But this is when the reader is told about it And it starts like this Not the Renly's ghost bit But the chapter itself
1: When Sir Lancel Lannister told the Queen that the battle was lost, she turned her empty wine cup in her hands and said, tell my brother, Ser.
0: Is this the same empty wine cup that she turned over before that she said she was not drinking wine anymore? I don't know. Like I said, Cersei's going all over the place here. She keeps changing her mind. She makes threats, doesn't follow through on them. Paranoia is quite a cruel mistress, isn't it? Hmm. And she's got good reason to be paranoid for once. Even though at this point, her side's already won. <laughs> but from her perspective, to be fair, it looks bad. I mean, consider that Sir Lencil Lannister has just told her that the battle is lost. I mean, what she's supposed to do, overrule him? Because she knows better. No, she doesn't. She's inside. She has no idea. So Lancel and Cersei proceed to argue about Joff's presence. He points out her huge mistake, but argues it's not too late to undo it. If Joff goes back out, it would help a lot. And isn't that ironic? Sandis has already lost a battle. So yeah, Joffrey going back out Would actually look pretty good for the Lannisters It would look brave To people who don't know the battle's over And there would be almost no risk Because they've pretty much won So how about that? Because Tywin and the Tyrells have already arrived. They've smashed into the rear of Stannis' army on both sides of the river. Remember, the Tyrells are on the south side hitting Stannis' army that's still trying to move over while the ones that have moved over are being hit by the army led by Tywin himself. They kind of did a split their forces kind of thing like almost like Rob, except for for different reasons, but still uh, with a similar result. So... It's pretty amazing that, you know, Tywin and the Tyrells know they're doing well here, but everyone else thinks they've lost, no matter what side they're on. Stannis think, knows he's lost. Uh, well, Davos is already in the water. Most of Stannis' troops know they've lost. But Cersei and Lancel and all these people think they've lost. That's wild, right? And, but this is not unrealistic. It's just the nature of a huge battle playing out over the cross of such a large area and the, the lack of quality of information being spread around. Nobody has all the information for this battle except maybe us readers, well, and, you know, George. There's just so much action, and it's beautifully and terribly, terribly overwhelming enough to take in all these basics. That's why these rereads are so powerful. We're learning. I mean, it's a battle. It's not as complicated. There's not, hidden, there's not as much hidden foreshadowing Things like that. Yet we still have so much to say about it and we're still catching things that we didn't catch twenty from 20 years ago. So here's another uh, moment for Osfrid Kettleblack. He has a chance to argue along with Lancel about, come on, don't hide Joffrey. What's the point of hiding Joffrey? He's going to die anyway. If Dennis takes the castle, you may as well, you know, do that. Use some game theory. Take a calculated risk. Aim for a good result because Joffrey's going to die anyway right? But he just stands there gawking, Osford does, until Cersei yells at him to get moving, even as Lancel is arguing succinctly against the reasons why. Osford, he could have lent his voice, but dude doesn't have battle He doesn't know what he's doing. He just looks like a warrior. All this reveals yet another reason for rereading, not that we needed another, but as I describe all these other things we're looking for, we've made some nominal attempts to categorize briefly Described in the entry of every episode, you know, different types of foreshadowing, different types of character discovery. The Battle of Blackwater is that rare kind of action that's actually so complex that so many things are going on at once, so many moving parts, that even with these three POVs, we miss a ton of it. And, of course, that's just the action. Like I said, characters set up for later battles, all that stuff. So I saved a lot of this best gushing about the battle for this last battle chapter because, well, this is where the battle ends. But of course, it's not actually over. There's no battle without aftermath. And the bigger the battle, the bigger the aftermath, generally speaking. But no exceptions on that front here. Sansa's generous spirit again comes through. She cannot bring herself to hate Lancel, despite who he is, a Lannister. She thinks, I should be hating him. I should be killing him. She kind of gets mad at herself for that. But it's her generosity of spirit, her grace. She's young, or he's young, he's brave, he's suffering, and she can't hate him for that. That's not something you hate you can fight your enemies, but you don't have to hate them. It's something like, uh, it's very much a Ned Stark type attitude, I think, who probably never hated very many of his enemies, but just did his duty. Here's another quote, somewhat like the one we grabbed from Tyrion about colors and, and vividness that, look at all the different colors here. I mean, it's just everywhere. It's so cool.
1: The southern sky was a swirl with glowing, shifting colors, the reflections of the great fires that burned below. Baleful green tides moved against the bellies of the clouds, and pools of orange light spread out across the heavens. The reds and yellows of common flame warred against the emeralds and jades of wild fire, each color flaring and then fading, birthing armies of short-lived shadows to die again an instant later. Green dawns gave way to orange dusks in half a heartbeat. The air itself smelt burnt. The way a soup kettle sometimes smelled if it was left on the fire too long, and all the soup boiled away. Embers drifted through the night air like swarms of fireflies.
0: Green tides, green dawns, jades and emeralds, yellows and reds, embers, swarms of fireflies.
1: Also, I think we can all relate to the soup kettle bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: <we've laughs>
1: Whether you yourself there. has done it or a roommate <laughs> or something, it's terrible.
0: It's really bad. I'm boiling the water away. Yeah, I did that. I've done that with boiling eggs and no yeah. water left, and the eggs are just cooking. And oh, eggs. It's so bad. And uh, shortly after this, uh, this quote, this colorful quote, she thinks of Lady and wonders if they'll be united in death. Because she's thinking that maybe she's about to die herself, but that's when a living, breathing canine shows up—Sandor, who is the kind of the real Jonquil here—but talks about how much being a knight sucks in this moment, and uh, you you can't help but sympathize for him. Is even if you don't like Sandor at all, what he's faced in this day is awful. It's it's, it's brutal, even without his trauma, but with his trauma. You know, factored into all that killing and war and fighting, it sucks. It's terrible. And so we have this beautiful moment with the song where she basically becomes brave in the face of what looks like he might be about to do something really dirty and ugly here. But she wins him over and he cries. It's the moment he broke from battle already, right? He already fled battle. But this is probably when he truly breaks. This is when he, you can argue that he's no longer the same person. He no longer is just a killer. He can't just be that guy anymore where, yep, killers rule the world. It's that simple. You know, kill or be killed, get out of the way of the strong. That version of Sandor is being burned away by this fire here. And in this moment of intimacy with Sansa where... It's so deep and so moving for both of them. It's also the moment where Sansa remembers it wrong. This is when she, when she thinks back on this, she thinks they kissed. And George has been explicit about that, that that wasn't a mistake on his part. He wasn't, maybe, maybe he's just being kitschy and said, no, I did that on purpose. Well, regardless of whether, whether George is telling the truth, or I believe him. Regardless though, it's what we've got. It's what's in, it's canon now. And she has this false memory. And it just goes to show how powerful the moment was for both of them. And it's immediately interspersed with the fake Jonquil, Dantos. I'm saying Jonquil. I meant Florian. I got it backwards. She's the she's Jonquil. Sandor is the fake Florian. And then da- <laughs> the real Florian and Dantos is the fake Florian. I said Jonquil. She's the Jonquil. Whoops. Anyway, blah, 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 erase that. Anyway. And so as he's describing, you know, how much knighthood is terrible, how look where it's gotten him and all this terrible stuff. Dantos, the fool, runs in yelling, oh, it's so wonderful to be a knight. Look, it's it's, knighthood is great. Think of the banners. Oh, to be a knight again. Right after, as Sandor has said how awful it is, he comes in running and saying how great it is. But you believe him. Sandor, not Dantos. Believe the guy that was in the battle, not the guy who was like watching it from afar, you know, like a TV show. But he mentions too, There's a, the, the the connection is even stronger because, well, look at how Dantos brings up even the ash, which is, uh, you know, related to Sandor and the fire bit. Let's look at the quote.
1: They came up the Rose Road and along the riverbank through all the fields Stannis had burned the ashes puffing up around their boots and turning all their armor gray. But oh, the banners must have been bright, the golden rose and golden lion and all the others, the marbrand tree and the rowan, Tarly's huntsman and red wine's grapes and Lady Oakheart's leaf, all the westermen, all the power of Highgarden and Casterly Rock. Lord Tywin himself had their right wing on the north side of the river with Randall Tarly commanding the center and Mace Tyrell, the left, but the Vanguard won won the fight.
0: And the Vanguard, of course, contained Renly's ghost, Garland Tyrell, wearing Renly's armor. You wonder, uh, it might have been a little lucky that Renly's armor was still available. We know Loras already buried him, but I guess he didn't bury him in his armor, which is maybe a little odd. But Loras also kept the gorget and maybe wanted to use it as proof. Against Brienne, which in fact later worked the opposite as proof against Brienne, but we're a little far afield here. It's it's neat to, to process what Dantos has said here and think about how much of what he's talking about in, in terms of symbolic power. The the golden banners, the gold is particularly uh, mentioned here above all the other colors, and that makes sense. It's it's the lions. And the golden rose, and the gold is what's winning here.
1: And we've got, I mean, there's things like Marbrands and Rowan's, like, there's a lot of gold references. Yeah, that's true.
0: <laughs> it seems like a lot of these vassals of the West added gold to their colors because it's, hey, they're all yeah, I mean, fueled uh, by it.
1: Yeah, and I think they all, like, not all, but I think multiple would have areas to mine. Yeah.
0: You're I don't right. think it's just
1: casually rock.
0: The West is the most, is even more mountainous and hilly than even the Vale, probably, um, or at least it's close, but they definitely have more gold. <laughs> And so this also makes me a little, I think a little bit of forward to the armies of the dead. And because he's talking about how everyone's armor is gray, which, you know, they're all, because they're all kind of gray. And that reflects as well the grayness of these characters and that it's hard to pick a side here. You know, there's, both sides are flawed. Both sides are, are uh, have their goods and bads. But she's the one guy you, don't have such maybe back and forth thoughts about his Tywin, And he's perhaps the biggest winner of all here. And it's like, well, that's the one guy I wasn't so excited about winning. So maybe Joffrey. Yeah. Was there a way for this to go with different Lannisters? Well, we'll have to be patient for that. Comment from our very own Rebea, Lady of Waves. The Bells. Yes, the Bells are a big part of this setting up Daenerys, which is perfect because we're going to be ending our chapter work today with Daenerys, who of course is the relevant character for dealing with the bells. So here's a nice long quote of Sansa thinking about the bells.
1: How long she stayed there she could not have said, but after a time she heard a bell ringing far off across the city. The sound was a deep-throated bronze booming, coming faster with each knell. Sansa was wondering what it might mean when a second bell joined in, and a third, their voices calling across the hills and hollows, the alleys and towers, to every corner of King's Landing. She threw off the cloak and went to her window. The first faint hint of dawn was visible in the east, and the Red Keep's own bells were ringing now, joining in the swelling river of sound that flowed from the seven crystal towers of the great sept of Baelor. They had rung the bells when King Robert when King Robert died, she remembered. But this was different. No slow, dolorous death knell, but a joyful thunder. She could hear men shouting in the streets as well, and something that could only be cheers.
0: Yeah, so this is, she doesn't quite realize what's happening yet. She doesn't realize the battle's over. This is before Dantos rushes in. I think, maybe not, but she's confused one way or the other. And the, but I want to draw your attention to the phrase joyful thunder, which makes me think of Danny because she's stormborn thunder. And that's given that is couched in the ringing of the bells. Yep. Well, we know George had this plan for the bells from the beginning because of the dithraki stuff and the, the bells of victory. That's just a constant thing that you know, the show omitted a lot of that. But we're on the lookout for how it's going to play out in the show. We know it'll be, I mean, with the books, we know that it's going to be different than what the show did. So by referring to the show here, we're only referring to that concept in knowing that it's going to play out differently. Lots of caveats there. Joe Buckley with a good take here. Another good take here. He's, he's always got lots of these good takes. While we're speaking of the prophecy and Cersei's talent for kind of self-destruction, uh, we should think about the th- what might be a little throwaway detail here the conclusion of lancel's clash arc which is you know cersei slamming her palm into his open wound we talk about how lancel's over his head how he's being mistreated by his family you know the, the adults in his family are supposed to be looking out for him helping him advance but instead they've kind of used him as a pawn he's he's being used by both tyrion and cersei and before that he was used uh, by cersei even more as part of you know the assassination of robert and all that Joe also suggested maybe Cersei slamming him in the wound is an extension of her feeling that frustration about being a powerless woman because that was a phrase she had just started talking about. And she wants to lash out and, and hit someone that's opposing her. And maybe he wonders if this, Contributed to his wound, maybe it made it worse. I, I'm I, I'm not so sure about that because it seems like an infection would be the one that would cause him the most damage, and that is what happens. His hair kind of turns gray. The, this wound is really bad; it, it turns uh, really awful on him. And it's possible that Cersei is part of that. If so, it's interesting that it pushes him along towards this joining the faith, which is pushing him into turning on Cersei. Obviously the faith is going to be a huge problem for Cersei, but Lancel's going to be on their side later. So maybe this is uh we're tracing things back to the origin of that digression or not that digression but that uh, split between Lancel and his family. Certainly he's going to feel betrayed when he has time to reflect on all of it. Joe also compares the possibility, what didn't actually happen, but what Cersei wanted to happen was Joffrey holding himself up in, in Meagor's, like Aegon Third, and the eventual Viserys I did. Hmm, interesting. That could, yeah, that could, they had the secret siege there, which uh, is maybe a little bit of a parallel. Here's a little quote that I'll read. She never knew why she got to her feet, but she did. Don't be afraid. She told them loudly, the queen has raised the drawbridge. This is the safest place in the city. There's thick walls, the moat, spikes. George has used this device before with Sansa in Early Clash and Tyrion uh, back in on the high road when he rescues Catelyn. As we discuss on both of these occasions, it's their true character coming out. Like they, just like Tyrion is like, why am I helping defend Catelyn, this person who, you know, is the reason I'm here, the person who captured me? You know, he just can't help be a decent guy sometimes. He's obviously not a decent guy quite often. Sansa is more clearly a good person consistently. Uh, you know, it's easier for her. She's a in a position where she's not forced to make decisions that end people's lives. However, it's still, that's not the point here. The point is that she rises to the occasion that when people are suffering, people are afraid, she tries to make them feel better about it. She tries to help assuage those fears, even though she isn't in charge. She's, what, 13 at this point? It's not really her place, but she sees it as such, and she does a good job of it. So the strength of character to do that, it's just, Joe, as Joe puts, it's absolutely tremendous. I wish I had the, the proper British abs- accent to say absolutely tremendous like he would because it would sound cooler.
1: How about we hear your best approximation so we can offend everyone? Okay.
0: It's absolutely tremendous. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't so bad. <laughs> uh, it wasn't good, but it wasn't bad, right? Okay. Well, other people can comment. I don't know. Maybe I, I'm, you if it was bad, I'll have to accept at it. At least it wasn't
1: so. offensive. Okay.
0: Think. Yeah, it wasn't offensive. <laughs> it wasn't a caricature. Uh, so yeah, so even as we, as we showed before, she's thinking how she should be killing Lancel, helping, but she just can't do it. And that just shows that Cersei's, Cersei's crueler to her own family than even Sansa. And it hasn't rubbed off on her, even though Cersei is trying to encourage her to be cruel. Being this role model of cruelty and pride, Sansa is, uh, remembers how, how she was raised and sticks to her own guns and sticks to her own personality and is not moved off of that. That's very cool. Joe calls it a superb moment, which also would sound better as, with a British accent. When Sandor talks about losing everything, this is what I was talking about before. Joe has a similar take, say it differently, worth reading in a different way. The actual reality of warfare, like when it gets right down to it, Sandor hasn't ever faced this. He's been involved in battle. He's killed, but he's never had to face fire like this and he's never taken wounds like this. He's never probably been in a situation where he thought he could lose. He's never, you know, been in a a battle that was so touch and go. So maybe he wasn't so, maybe he realized that, hey, I'm not as fearless as I thought I was. It's his own questioning of himself going, he's facing the reality of, I'm not as brave as I thought I was. I'm not as willing to die as I thought I was. And it's couched in his childhood trauma, rushing back at him because of all this fire. And of course, nothing's going to make him feel as helpless or as unbrave as thoughts of Gregor holding his face in the flame and being able to do nothing, nothing about it then or now. The cloak is a pretty big deal here. Sansa wearing his cloak after he tears it off. Now, it's, of, of course, symbolic of, of his final leaving of the Garden, his leaving of the Lannisters, but, but he leaves it behind with her. And Tree Girl, with a great catch here, he, she puts it on and huddles on the floor with it in a scene that's very similar to how Danny hudder, huddles under the white lion pelt uh, left by Drogo. And I don't have a, a, a... There might be more to say on that. Uh, there might be more, a deeper meaning to them doing that, to, to huddling under this cloak of protection given to them. And it, it could speak to the way marriage is brought up in Westeros. And I don't mean Sansa and Sandor are going to get married. I just mean that cloaks are very symbolic of offering your protection like in a in a west Rossi wedding the the husband cloaks his house's colors on her as symb- as symbolic of how they're now she's now under his protection and that's kind of what's happening here even though sandor has left <laughs> so it's kind of an inversion of that whole thing and the white wall of his cloak was stained by blood and fire a very poignant little line there Aerys also led his Kingsguard to such, staining them with blood and fire, the, the, the awkwardness, the awfulness of certain Targaryens. It isn't just him, obviously. Magor, lots of other kings and queens of, uh, who sat in the Iron Throne have given orders to their Kingsguard that has stained their honor. So staining by blood and fire is a perfect way to describe the Targaryen perversion of, uh, of rule. It would be true with the Lannisters too. Whoever rules is quite likely... Uh, at some point that dynasty is going to produce people that are going to make the Kingsguard or, or other people do things that they don't believe in, do shameful things that make them feel ashamed for having followed them, for like Barriston is going to feel. Barriston, lots of these knights are the Kingsguard knights. Arthur Dane, Jamie Lannister. They're going to feel ashamed. Harry Oakhart, yeah. They're going to feel the shame of, of what they're betters have told them to do and how performing those duties has shamed them yet they just still go along with it only the non-knight here says enough because i'm not going to do this anymore i'm not going to follow their orders i'm not going to help them facilitate all this bull all this hypocrisy all this violence now maybe i'm putting words in sandor's mouth as to his reasoning maybe he's just it's purely i'm running away because i'm scared but if that's true why did he go to Sansa? It's definitely a little more complicated than that. Anyway, that is all we have for Sansa Seven, which means that's all we have for the Battle of Blackwater, but it's not all for today. And we will be doing, of course, lots of the aftermath of the Battle of Blackwater next week. But now we move as far away as we possibly can, as far away as the narrative ever goes, which is Karth, Danny Five, the gang meets Strong Belwis, and Arston, aka the last Dance in Karth. The constant theme of Karth being a corrupt, excessive place doesn't let up. It's just so overwhelming how over-the-top, corrupt this place is. The first line just reminds us. Which is important, because we were just in battle for all these chapters. we got to get our bearings. Quote.
1: She was breaking her fast on a bowl of cold shrimp and persimmon soup when Erie brought her a Karthine gown, an airy confection of ivory samite patterned with seed
0: pearls. Jeez, right? Like, just... Having breakfast, and here's another extremely fancy gown, another day in Karst. Sounds like <laughs> such a gross breakfast. Yeah, cold shrimp and persimmon soup, yeah. That might I, be I, I could
1: maybe hang with it for lunch or dinner, but my breakfast? Anyways. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right on. That's living like a rich, a super, super rich person. You eat some rich foods at strange times of the day. So five chapters of Straight Fire, Wildfire again. We're, we're here now. We're Danny's slowed down and uh, more calculating and trying to figure out what to do and realizing things aren't going so well. It's, it's time to get out, though. The wildfire in the, in the Battle of Blackwater is an indirect reminder of the rise of magic because the quantity of wildfire Tyrion had available was greatly increased by, well, said rise of magic and as undefined and undetermined as the source of, of that increase of magic may be. It's not really in doubt that it's happening. Only the source is the doubt right? We know it's actually happening. Presence of magic increasing, and it's on the rise. And good Lord, this passage is just full of magic. It's incredible. Look at all this. Was it not you who told me warlocks were no more than old soldiers, vainly boasting of forgotten deeds and lost
1: prowess? Sorrow looks troubled. And so it was then. But now, I am less certain. It is said that the glass candles are burning in the house of, of Urothon Nightwalker that have not burned in a hundred years. Ghost grass grows in the Garden of Gehane. Phantom tortoises have been seen carrying messages between the windowless houses on Warlock's Way, and all the rats in the city are chewing off their tails. The wife of Mathos Malarawan, who once mocked a warlock's drab, moth-eating robe, had gone mad and will wear no clothes at all. Even fresh washed silk make her feel as though a thousand insects were crawling on her skin. And blind Sebastian, the eater of eyes, can see again, or so his slaves do swear. Man must wonder, he sighed. These are strange types, times in Carth, and strange times are bad for trade. It grieves me to say so, yet it might be best if you left Carth entirely and sooner rather than later. Yeah, he
0: goes from saying that to like, maybe you should leave Carter by the end of the chapter. He's pretty much like, you need to get the heck out of here. But he d- she doesn't need his words because the evidence is all around her uh, that she doesn't really have much reason to be here anymore. It's not doing much for her. And in fact, it's starting to be not just a waste, but a danger. But well, let's break down some of these magical elements here. The glass candle's coming alive again. The glass candle's burning again in the house of Urethon Nightwalker. Some people want to know if Urethon Nightwalker might be like a Euron type of parallel. I don't really think so. Um, Although Euron is about to probably be in this area if he isn't already, because he's going to be claiming the Warlocks uh, during their attempt to revenge themselves on Danny. He's going to sort of abscond with their revenge plan and take it for himself. So he's got to be around here, but I still think it's in his ship. I don't think he's established himself in Karth. That's a bit much because he's not, He hasn't been out in the world that long. He didn't leave Pike that long ago for him to have a house and to be this well known under a different name. The first guy mentioned by Zaro here. I don't think so. That's just too much for me. But that doesn't mean there isn't something we can glean from this. Which is, well, maybe a story for another time. Still, the fact that the glass candles haven't been on for 100 years is interesting and that's relevant to us. We know they're going to also start burning at, at the Citadel. And what that's going to do for the story in the long run, we don't know. Maybe that's how Quaith is speaking to Danny from afar. It's certainly indicated that glass candles might have that capacity. But we're just getting started with glass candles. This is, however, I believe, I didn't actually look this up. I think it's the first time they're mentioned, but I'll, I'll correct that if it's, if I'm wrong about it later. The rats in the city chewing off their tails. Jeez, what is that all about? And the, the wife of Mathos Malarawan. So most of these descriptions of magic are proof of the warlock's power, right? Mathos Malarawan's wife is having these issues about going mad and not wearing clothes because she insulted a warlock. And the tortoises carrying messages, that's on warlock's way. It's unclear if this Urethon Nightwalker guy is related to the warlocks, but I think he might be given so much of this other stuff is. Blind Sebastian, the eater of eyes, can see again? Who the heck is that guy? Why does he eat eyes? What is going on? <laughs> but they, the point is, like Zaro says, these are strange times in Karth. Yeah, there are strange times all over the world, though. What's happening in Karth is just a microcosm of what's happening elsewhere. Birth of Dragons is, uh, you know, that's perhaps the biggest magical event that's happened around the world recently. But There's got to be lots of other ones. Ghostgrass is mentioned, too. Ghost grass is certainly a supernatural thing, something that we're curious about, something that might be related to like the Eastern version of The Long Night or The Shadowlands, certainly related to The Shadowlands. But yeah, the one part that keeps us grounded here is the end of the quote, the Zaro's take on trade, which reminds us of what kind of man he is. That's the kind of attitude that any guy who's focused on trade, any woman or person focused on trade is going to be like, yeah. Strange times are bad for trade, and trade is what we care about most. So if you are encouraging the harm of trade, you are hurting the local economy, that is the biggest deal, um, one of the biggest things you could be impacting. We cannot allow that, so get the heck out of here. So not only is there pressure to leave from Zorro personally, and the revenge of the warlocks, which she's, you know, at this point, she's kind of laughing at that, but, you know, there's, there's some evidence that she shouldn't be laughing at it. But She's not getting anywhere here. No one's helping her. No one's giving her what she needs. And she's thinking about how her Dothraki are getting restless. If they start getting trouble, that causing trouble around the city, that's going to make her welcome wear out even faster. And arguably, it's already worn out. She doesn't need to make any new enemies. And so she kind of has this summarizing thought here that kind of captures where she's at. Let's do that quote.
1: It was a city that always promised more than it would give you, it seemed to her. And her welcome here had turned sour since the House of the Undying had collapsed in a great gout of smoke and flame. Overnight, the Carthine had come to remember that dragons were dangerous. Oh. No longer did they vie with each other to give her gifts. Instead, the Termaline Brotherhood had called openly for her expulsion and the ancient guild of Spicers for her death. It was all Zaro could do to keep the 13 from joining them.
0: Zaro does his thing, finding leverage and bargaining power wherever he can. As a merchant prince, he's, you know, that's his, that's his wont to do such a thing. It's similar to the situation with Illyrio and Viserys, though, right? Her brother went on and on about the usurpers' hired knives, which did not exist. And Illyrio probably knew that, but let Viserys believe it because it you know, helped his position. Here, Zaro is probably exaggerating his role in protecting her as well as how bad the threats are. But they are bad. He's not wrong that people do want her to leave, and that some of them want her to leave badly enough to make attempts on her life. He just wants credit for helping her with that. He just wants to, he's still trying to get a dragon out of her. You know, he tries the marriage trick, he tries trade, he tries, you know, guilting her into it, but it just doesn't work. I love how she bargains him into saying one of my top picks for most ridiculous. And weak response in all the song, advice, and fire. I'll read this quote myself a third of all the ships in the world, pa, pa, I say, pa. She made him say pa three times. <laughs> three pa's, that's like three horn blasts, right? Nah. No. <laughs> but it's a setup for the fake out swap in Slaver's Bay. They're discussing what dragons are worth and what's a fair trade would be. We see the insanely high, but not necessarily unfair price of one third of the ships in the world, because one dragon for you know, that's a dragon, right? And and so later, it's one dragon offered for thousands of the best infantry in the world. But nope, that won't do either. That's not a fair trade either. Dragons worth even more than that. And an offer so insulting, it gets the slavers who make that offer killed. Although that's probably what happened anyway. I'm just kidding. It's got nothing to do with insults. Danny is very good at taking insults and not being bothered, especially in that scene and many others. She just Loves to let these men think they're insulting her, and then she insults them, and they lose their mind because they actually are weak enough to, uh, have their ego injured. Where Danny's like, "These are just words, man." Danny
1: <laughs> has a whole lifetime of experience with that.
0: Yeah, her brother let her, you know, like, was called her all sorts of names. Yeah, He's like just, that's not gonna hurt. Yeah, me.
1: mean, snarky, all of those things. <laughs> so she's just used to
0: it. Yeah, she's been through so much. Like words aren't gonna do that much to someone who's been through the red waste and Drogo and her losing her kid and the fire and yeah. Mary Mazdor. Like, you're going to you think words are going to hurt her? <laughs> Please. But these other people, <laughs> they have not. Like, what what sort of adversity has Zaro gone through in his life? You know, this is the kind of guy that's like, woe is me. My ships could be sinking right now. I'm losing money as we speak. Him of who owns 80 ships and a palace that you know, puts the Red Keep to shame.
1: Yeah, I mean, a tragedy, a travesty <laughs> to him is not is that he is not gaining money.
0: Yeah, he's like, he, he really is like so many men in the world that think if you give a woman a lot of gifts, she owes you something. But this is taking that notion to another level because this isn't the usual where you the man thinks the woman owes her sex. This is, you owe me a dragon because <laughs> he's not even interested in sex. He's apparently you know, homosexual. He's not into women. He wants that dragon. (laughs) He wants to ride that dragon. He doesn't care about her.
1: Yeah, he does.
0: (laughs) He wants to ride that worm. (laughs) So that is uh, an overtone here that, you know, giving enough gifts makes you think that you deserve something. But he's like, nah. Have you given me a thousand, you know, one third of the world's ship's worth of gifts, because that might get a dragon out of me. (laughs) So you can't move her off of that. And she's right. She is right. Dragons are worth, they are priceless and do not give your child away um, on top of that, which Barristan is going to be fooled by that later. And speaking of Barristan, we're about to get to him. Not quite. She connects the concept of Mummer's dragon here. She's thinking of She's talking to Jora about what she saw at the House of the Undying. And some of this isn't terribly useful to us because it's it's the early phase of these theories and these references. And we're so far past it now. But that said, it's still got some very important parts to it, especially the confirmation that her brother played a harp with silver strings. That's a detail Jorah can't ignore because it's accurate and she knows, or he knows, that she she doesn't have any access to that knowledge. Where did she hear about this harp with silver strings? that Rhaegar definitely played. Well, that says something to Jorah, like, wow, this vision might have had some some real prophecy to it if it's revealing, because that's a specific clue that's uh, very accurate. Now, she connects the concept of Mummer's dragon to a cloth dragon on poles, which is uh, an ongoing debate that almost, most of the fandom seems to indicate is young Griff, uh, and it seems to indicate that he is not truly the son of Rhaegar. Cloth dragon, Mummer's dragon, Varys's dragon. Yeah, probably a fake. And she also thinks of that moment in her dream with the Song of Ice and Fire, which she relates to Mumber's Dragon and Cloth Dragon. Quote.
1: There was a woman in a bed with a babe at her breast. My brother said the babe was the prince that was promised and told her to name him Aegon.
0: Prince Aegon was Rhaegar's heir by Ilya of Dorne, Sir Jorah said. But if he was this prince that was promised, the promise was broken along with his skull when the Lannisters dashed his head against the wall. So." Remember back in A Game of Thrones 1, I pointed out to what I contend is convincing evidence that the Aegon plot has been on George R. R. Martin's mind since book 1. Well, here's some more of that setup. The two elements are back to back here. The notion that Aegon is dead and that there will be a fake dragon. They're just right there back to back. Jora and Danny don't know exactly what they're discussing, but we readers do. It sh- it stands out massively at this point, something that would be really hard to catch On a first time read Especially if you read it Before Dance with Dragons Was even out Because that's when You get Varus' big confession And you meet Fagon So it's all Or Young Griff If you prefer Nothing like an assassination Attempt to help you Make your mind up The sorrowful man That comes for her With a manticore Has an easy time of it Because Danny and her protectors Are so used to people Giving her fancy gifts and Barriston, he doesn't have all that rep for nothing. His work with that staff is unparalleled. It's what outs him as Barriston later, his skill. Jora hears that he beats Miro, the feared sellsword captain of the uh, Second Sons much later, and we see that personally ourselves from Danny's point of view. So we know that it was epic. We know it's like, wow, Arston is what is up with that guy? So, well, you know, we've seen closer fights than that one. Barriston owns Miro pretty severely. And well, some people think this is um, you know, maybe not the strongest chapter, but I think it's pretty powerful. Barrison is getting a completely new look for me on this reread. That's part of why this chapter is important. I'm definitely a believer that Barrison is gonna fall for this very lie, the cloth dragon on poles, that's also that's introduced in the same chapter he's introduced to Danny. All the plot elements are combined here, meaning that he's gonna to flip to Aegon, he's gonna switch sides. And I hadn't read the books again since I you know, became a fan of that theory. So now this read is the first time I'm going through the books with an eye towards Barristan's future as a potential turncloak. There's no sneaky language I could see here or anything like that in terms of hidden foreshadowing. But Kingsguard are supposed to die with their king. I mean, I'm not moralizing here. I'm just saying that's a pattern that we see. I'm not saying that if I were a Kingsguard, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to die with my king. Especially because so many of these kings are awful. But we see that throughout history, right? So many of these, these Kingsguard just believe that that's their proper place to die alongside their king or if their king dies to you know go take the go join the wall or something like that. So Barristan, right or wrong, agree with me or not on the Kingsguard dying, did not die with Rhaegar or Ares or take the Black or go seek out Viserys or leave Joffrey. He was kicked out by Joffrey. Or Robert. Or Robert, yeah. So again, not a combination of him, just looking at the patterns and seeing where that might go. The biggest pattern for me here is he has so much in common with Kristen Cole, details that cannot be coincidence. Now, the biggest part about Sir Kristen Cole is he turns on a young Targaryen queen for a male claimant named Aegon. Both Kristen Cole and Barristan Selmy are from the Dornish marches in the Stormlands. Both got their white cloak at the precise age of 23. Both became Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. And both were named Hand. Kristen Cole, Hand of the King. Uh, Barristan Selmy, Hand of the Queen. Certainly not conclusive by any means, but it's hard to hear all that very specific parallel, paralleling and not be a little suspicious at least. But I'm more than suspicious. Like I said, I do believe Barristan will turn on Danny. So the silver lining to his death on TV is that it stands a good chance of being just completely irrelevant to book canon. Every once in a while the show by doing something wrong is actually good from us on the book perspective, because we're like, well, at least that mystery is still to come for us. And mystery abounds Barrison in general, because even if he doesn't switch to Egon, he's gonna have conflict about it unless, you know, he does die like he does on TV before he can face any of that conflict. So there, I really eagerly await the resol- resolution of a lot of those mysteries. Because also, Barrison has like things he knows, right? He was thinking about Ashara Dane. He was thinking about Rhaegar. He was thinking about all these other things. He thought about S- Stark. He was at the Tournament of Harrenhal. On the other hand, the guy he's with, Strong Bell, was the opposite. There's very little mystery to this guy. He's a comic relief killer. And I don't mean a killer of comic relief. <laughs> I mean a killer who provides comic relief, of course. Only in a story with so much killing can a character like this actually be funny. <laughs> and there is no cynicism in that comment. I love me some strong Belois. But as it often is with comic relief characters, even dad ones, there's often, yeah, there's not much mystery to them. Like, is Dolores Ed a mysterious character? Not really. Just think about all a lot of the other funny characters out there, uh, and a lot of them are not that mysterious. Some of them are. Stannis, maybe. Tyrion, Jamie, maybe. You're inside their heads, though. Well, not Stannis. So, I don't know. In contrast to his squire, of course, Arston, this is a good thing that Bellwas is simple. Simplicity is part of what makes him an excellent addition to Team Danny. For example, uh, recall Bellwas's shining moment, stolen on TV by Dario, or when he defeats the so-called hero of Marine Oznak Zopal pretty easily, but in a way that gives everyone a show. There's a dot to connect here because in that skirmish. Uh, that happens at the beginning of this chapter when there's a misunderstanding, and you know Danny, uh, Danny's Blood Riders think that Arshton and and Strong Bellwas are part of the group attacking them, but it actually they're they're part of the group saving Danny. So the Blood Riders and Bellwas get into each other's faces for a second, and they're you know Bella threatens them, and they threaten him back, and and Danny's like, hey, stop that, you guys are all on the same team here. So there's a little bad blood there, but when Bellwas beats. Osnac, Zopal, they are among the loudest cheering him on, telling him, great job, dude. We, that was a, gave us a great show, and you fought well. And he's like, yeah, I did. <laughs> you gotta love Belos, right? Anyway, the attempt on her life is is another sign, a definite sign that it is time to leave. Like we said, but with Tyrion's position versus Stannis, they only have to succeed once, and she's dead. The Sorrowful Man wasn't even recognized, let alone captured. All they lost was a manticore in a nice box and maybe some money to, that they spent. So, you know, this is another game theory example here, but it's a super simple version. Lots of risk, no reward. It's a pretty easy uh, uh, plan from there. How many times will someone try to assassinate Danny, though, in this whole series? Already. Uh, well, maybe one's. Sadly, you got to think of when you think about that, you're like, well, maybe eventually one's going to succeed probably at the end. Uh, John, maybe. Ugh. But wine cellar, sorrowful man. Poisoned Locust. Thanks again, Strong Belwus, by the way. <laughs> S- saves her from that. Will a faceless man ever come for her? Maybe. Will Cersei or Varys or the Queen of Thorns try to poison her or something? I'm just throwing out names of people who have done that kind of sort of thing before and who aren't explicitly going to be on Danny's side. You later. know what
1: John is? What's he's going to be a sorrowful man.
0: Oh, oh He is going to yeah, be I'm gonna so gonna be like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh my god, you're yeah. right. He is going to Wow, that's a good point.
1: Yeah. Now, if he just tries to sell Danny some wine, he's <laughs> really into locusts, <laughs> it'll all come together. She's <laughs> <Jeez. laughs>
0: so decision to leave is made even easier by the arrival of actual ships to take her, right? Mm-hmm. Very cool that she names them after her ancestors conquering dragons. She's like, Yeah, Vigar, Moraxes, and Valerian. But what did we just say about renaming ships? Bad luck. (laughs) But anyway, she's on that same path after all. The uh, the path of Aegon the Conqueror by naming her dragons after his dragons. But that's a little dark, isn't it? She wants their throne. In her mind, she's like she deserves it because it's justice. But conquering isn't justice. So, yeah, something to hold on to. There's nothing to think about in terms of the. Whole moral conundrum surrounding Danny as a as a conqueror versus liberator versus uh, a child of destiny and all that. But speaking of being a child of destiny, we've talked at length about how so many things around Danny remind her that she is a child of destiny. There's just too many pieces of evidence from her perspective that she's special, right? It's hard to argue that hey, a comet, you know, sending her like an actual miracle birthing dragons. There's so many things that. Point her to being special that are supernatural. It's like hard, like it's, it's unfathomable what a real person would feel like in her spot. And here it comes another sign, three. She's spent a good part of this chapter thinking about all the threes, like a three, this, three, that, three thing. And then three ships show up at the end of the chapter to carry her towards her destiny. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, yet again, she is reminded that she's special. She's a child of destiny and just embrace that. Which she does thoroughly. She doesn't seem to hesitate on that. She's not a person that lacks confidence. Joe Buckley with a, a good take here again. As usual, need a break from those intense repeated POVs as we did back in Ned's fall. And this was far more intense than that. Re Battle Blackwater. So he says it had to be like a John or Daenerys, maybe Bran chapter to to just be so different than what we just saw. But Danny's chapter. Is slowed down pace wise, even though there's an assassination attempt in it, it's still kind of slowed down in terms of what's John's chapters are hectic right now. He's beyond the wall, you know, he's about to have to kill Corin Halfhand and join the Wildlings. That's not slowing things down. That's going from one form, that's going from tension at King's Landing to tension beyond the wall. Danny's more of a like in a thoughtful place, like, what should I do next? Where should I go? And yeah, an assassination attempt in there. Well, compared to the Battle of the Blackwater, one little assassination attempt isn't, uh, isn't a whole lot. <laughs> so Joe also points to Danny telling Jorah about her visions and wondering if that's going to come up again later, like during his, you know, they're during their separation. Maybe Jorah just isn't uh, is the type to just kind of forget about it and not, not think about it too much because it's, it's outside his wheelhouse, outside his capacity to be a, a dude that interprets prophecy. But it but it might come up. He might bring it up. He might mention it. He might suggest to other people, look, the reason you should be on her side is because of all these prophecies that say this and how she's fulfilling them. Do you really want to be on the opposite side of a child of destiny? It's a pretty good argument to in a superstitious world. And he's got firsthand evidence he's seen himself. So he makes a pretty good salesperson for that perspective. Maybe it's how he gets... In her good graces later Because we know from the show That they get back together Maybe that won't happen in the books He's certainly not going to be A grayscale candidate, I think Not not in the way that happens on the show But maybe this is how he wins her back over By drumming up support for her And this could be one of the ways he does that By, you know, having knowledge Of of the prophecies she's fulfilled As well as the birth of the dragons Joe also wonders if Daenerys felt a bit like Viserys in this small period of basically being told to hop from a great city and, and actual hired knives coming after her, right? That's a uh, might reminder of that. It would be hard not to. And also, we should think about Illyrio here. He's obviously been keeping tabs on Danny, but didn't expect her to go to Karth in the first place. And he got this message, presumably from, from Jorah uh, or from others, or, and or from others, I should say, So that's how he knew she was there, which by the way, Danny doesn't ever seem to fully process that. But how did he know I was here and all that, but they may have sent a specific message letting Illyrio know that I either was not mentioned or that I just didn't notice. Anyway, she's certainly heard. Illyrio has certainly heard of Viserys' death and, and Drogo's death, most likely as well. And, perhaps wonders what she's doing in Karth and and realizes that Karth is fool's gold. Yeah, there's lots of wealth and power there, but it's not going to be given to you in any capacity that you can find useful. Lirio may have foreknowledge of that. He's been around the block. He's a lot older than Danny. He's been involved in trade. He's a high level political operator. He knows a thing or two about Karth. He probably could have told her not to go there in the first place. Just get the heck out. So I want to take a quick note here as well. The the gaming pit where a basilisk is being torn apart by a big red dog. Fighting pits seem to, or, or big red dogs, rather or sorry, basilisk is tearing apart a big red dog. <laughs> Fighting pits seem to exist wherever slavery exists and in other places, but not so much Westeros, though, you know, there's the occasional thing like the bear pit. We ruminate quite a bit on how the creations of blood magic fit into the picture not that long ago in Westerosi history via our Gregasos bonus episode, which you can get by joining Patreon. All patrons have access to all of our bonus episodes, of which we have several. This is as good a time as any to say there will be another bonus episode coming out next week following Arya's departure from Harrenhal. We'll be discussing all the characters she meets there and refreshing ourselves on where they're at. Another episode of Where Are They Now? A character who's uh, I also want to know where he is now, meaning his health status, because we know he's at Slaver's Bay, is strong bell was, And I want to briefly complain about his absence from TV, which other people complain about too. It would have been so easy, man. He just fights one or two duels here and there and then just stands there looking menacing and occasionally has a one liner like that would have been easy to fit him in. Would have been someone that could have maybe survived after so many other people in Danny's court or killed off. But maybe they just wanted to give themselves a head start on later making her more isolated and friendless, which would mean having to remove Strong Belvis or kill him off or something, which we wouldn't have wanted to see that either. Now, Tree Girl notices that Barry, meaning Barriston, of course, is immediately on alert. He's like, you don't recognize me, Jorah? Lord Morma? you don't recognize me? You sure? Because if he did recognize Barriston, then that would be bad because Jorah would realize that he's been outed. Because he's been sending messages to the small council, and Jorah would go, wait a minute. You were on the small council, you know. Uh-oh. <laughs> but clearly, Jorah can't make that connection if he doesn't even know who Arston is. So Barriston is like, All right, good job of of my my bad name here, my very poorly chosen nickname, Arston. Barriston, not only is the is Arston the letters in there, but the, I'm if I remember correctly, it's either his father or his grandfather was named Arston. So this is kind of like the equivalent of making your password "password" or or Disney or George or one of those really common passwords. Yeah,
1: I mean, can you really expect Barristan to to be that sneaky? Yeah, Knights of the Kingsguard aren't known
0: for their subterfuge and, no. and under are their cunning, you know. <laughs> so yeah, so it is what it is. Barristan's being Barristan. He, you love him for what he is, or not. Uh, But he is consistent, I suppose, (laughs) consistently inconsistent in some ways, consistently consistent in others. And we'll just have to wait and see on Barristan and where he goes from here and and later, keeping our eye out for the future. Other people wondering about uh, the mention of the name Visenya, because she brings it up here as uh, one of the three heads and how this is part of the theory for why Rhaegar might have been thinking that there should be a Viserys or a Visenya um, or, or maybe that Jon is a Viserys. So I personally think Jon is Aegon or Aemon. I'm not a big fan of of Jaehaerys as his name. I see this argument for Viserys, but I, I kind of doubt it. I think, it's, I think it would fit, but I just think it's going to be Visenya. Aegon or Aemon.
1: It's Visenya. Visenyo? It's Visenya. We're just going to keep whispering that in the background it's of all Visenya. of our episodes. John Visenyo. You <laughs> know Snow. what team
0: Shea is on. <laughs> Always. <laughs> all right, folks, let's head to our outro. Like I said, Davos becomes the second POV to end his arc here in this book. Catelyn's going to beat him to it by having her last chapter last week. Danny, of course, had her last one as well today. Nine POVs in the book total, not counting Cresson next week we'll be wrapping up the other six let's go through them real quick with their names that we've given them it's going to start with Arya 10 the one where Roos hunts wolves aka the gang escapes Harrenhal
1: Sansa 8 the gang divides the spoils of war aka the one with Sansa's new hairnet
0: Theon 6 the one where Ramsay captures Theon aka the gang sacks Winterfell Tyrion
1: 15 Tyrion Lannister The face of plasterly rock, a.k.a. the one where milk of the poppy leads to Taisha dreams. Yikes.
0: John 8. The gang kills the half-hand, a.k.a. the one where John joins the free folk.
1: And Brand 7. The gang splits up and heads north, a.k.a. the one where Hodor opens the door.
0: Opens the door, you say? Hmm, is that set up for something else in Hodor's arc later? I couldn't think of what. And, of course, that is the last chapter in the Clash of Kings. So we will be finishing Clash of Kings next week, and then we will be taking, uh, as we did with Game of Thrones, we'll have a one-episode uh, summarizing uh, wrap-up of the Clash of Kings, and we will have guests for that. I believe we're going to have Joe Buckley and Lady Gwyn, like we were supposed to have for Game of Thrones, Joe Buckley wasn't able to make it. Hopefully he can make it this time. I will be double-checking with them to make sure that time still works for them and announcing it. But either way... I appreciated all of y'all coming today. I have a lot of thanks to give. Shay and I are very grateful to y'all for coming and for all your thoughtful comments and for liking the show, for telling your friends about it. You would be surprised or maybe not, but it is surprising how much likes and comments and sharing drives our success. And of course, you maybe aren't as surprised at how Patreon drives our success. That's a little more concrete and tangible. But thanks to all our patrons as well. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld. Thanks to Joey Townsend. Thanks to Jesse Coall. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for contributions of both the music and visual side things, maps, theme songs, all that. Thanks again to Radio Westeros for me being at their house last week. I broadcast from their spot. Got We got a lot of work done on, on our Dancing the Dragons episodes. Part two will include... Uh, all the pre-war stuff that begins with uh, Daemon taking Harrenhal and the death of Lucerius and Arax and Jace going north and the whole pact of ice and fire and all that. That'll be very cool. Also, thanks to our mods on, on the History Westros Facebook group. Y'all do a fantastic job. And of course, today I was showing off the Davos that Tommy gave me. That was fun. Davos was expressing his uh, surprise at certain moments in today's episode thanks again to people who contribute on flick or on facebook or on slack which we've just launched for patrons you can uh, email us about that if you haven't joined and want to or find the post itself on patreon and that is it everybody thanks again we'll see you next week at the usual time to wrap up flash with the final chapters and then as i said the week after to do a full look at the book as a whole until then valar re us